my fellow Westorians. Welcome to another episode. Actually, this is the first ever episode, but it is another episode. And yes, for such a large but somewhat obscure topic, we've got an excellent guest here today, someone who loves to focus on topics like this, obscure stuff, the stuff outside the general focus, which is sometimes some of the best stuff. Welcome, Tim, Grayways Tim, to History of Westeros podcast. We're happy to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Hello, I'm Grayways Tim. Uh, I run my own YouTube channel, Grayways Tim, on YouTube, and you can find me on Twitter at the Gray Waste. My focus has mainly been on Lovecraftian influence on A Song of Ice and Fire, and my specialty is taking a topic that has maybe two sentences written about it and making a two-hour stream out of it. Right on. Well, we, we like to do that too, so we're we're <laughs> going to collaborate and, and hopefully something fun comes out of it. I do expect that it will. So this stream is bound to be about 18 hours. <laughs> <laughs> we take ours, multiply it to two hours, and he does the same and it multiplies. Yeah, just geometric expansion of two <laughs> sentences. <laughs> This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, Sean, I, I, that looks like whale oil that you're drinking. Is, is it indeed whale oil or is it something else today? This is just murky green water from a pool of some laboratory. I don't know. <laughs> the pool of some <laughs> laboratory. I didn't know laboratories had pools. <laughs> Who's got a pool at their lab? These are some fancy labs. H.P. Lovecraft does. <laughs> yes. The man who died in poverty had a, <laughs> without ever having much success, had a pool in his laboratory. Yes, that sounds about right. If he did have a laboratory. Oh, look at that. Tim's drink is the exact same color as yours. I got some matcha green tea with honey. Nice. And I, I use the skull-shaped glass, and this is the longest spoon I can find going low, long spoon on it. <laughs> I need one that's pearl-encrusted, though, yes, so we can do the, you do. Do the real I, I scarlet do emperor stuff. <laughs> I do have a new beverage mixed in here. There's caffeinated sparkling ice now. Is so this there? is the, the, the green machine naked drink with the Baja Blast Mountain Dew with caffeinated blueberry sparkling ice and it's good <laughs> nice i mean i don't believe you but nice <laughs> <laughs> shout out to our friend nina her notes uh, are always of great help to us latest blog post over on good queen alley with one l.tumblr.com is a question on how the tyrells could be just so gung-ho about marrying their daughter to two people they absolutely know came from an incestuous relationship 
whether they say that out loud is too, is a different thing. But they do know. <laughs> so that's a, that's a good point to consider. We encourage you all to join the discussion. If you're here live watching on YouTube, that's awesome. We appreciate you being here. Have fun with all the other chatters and send a question or two if you feel like it. And if you check us out ahead of time, you can always send questions to us to consider before the episode, Facebook or Discord or through Patreon, or just send us an email at westroshistory at gmail.com. We have a new logo that we've launched today. It's not on the podcast yet. It's on our Twitter. It's on, where else is it? Yeah. We have a few variants that we've done. We do have them on on YouTube, SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter. We have a special rainbow version, a variant, just to catch the eye a little more. Trying out a few things. Yeah, it really pops. And Groban <laughs> likes his ladies to pop and his avatars to pop, apparently. But yeah, so I'm rolling that out a few places. That's by Fox and Brambles, who y'all might recognize the name of because she's done some great different sigil designs on Etsy and on Redbubble. So I recommend checking that out. And most excitingly, on our Threadless store on historyofwesteros.threadless.com, or if you just go to historyofwesteros.com and click on shirts, we added variant designs for this logo in different colors. So you could have a dragon egg shirt that's got a purple egg or a blue egg or the regal egg on a sticker or a shirt or whatever. So go check that out. Pick your favorite egg color. Yeah. This is the... the New logo that has like the, the banner, the History of Westeros banner with the egg in the background. Yeah, egg I, and a dragon. Right, yeah. yeah. Although the Twitter yeah. variant I made does not have the dragon. It was a little busy for Twitter. I really wanted to highlight the text. So, so now there's a few different versions. A yeah, few versions. Yeah. Some <laughs> of the differences are just colors, but yeah, there's also some different designs. So check it out, folks. We're excited to have that. So this is not a Highlander logo. There can be several. Yeah, there can be several. <laughs> you know, I, I have another plug to make too, by the way. I, I'm doing the Daily DVR. Better Call Saul. Very good. Notably, Um, I covered Better Call Saul last season on Daily DVR with uh, W. Axel Foley. So that's awesome to hear, Sean. Great. We'll keep an eye out for that, folks. We'll share the link around on social media when it's out as well. Now let's get going. Trivia question. Ib lies in the Shivering Sea. A great name. Home to the oldest and largest of all the living creatures of the earth, according to the World of Ice and Fire. They may range elsewhere as well, but they're definitely in the Shivering Sea. What is this great sea beast? Answer at the end of the episode. Hint, it's not ice dragons. Though if those do turn out to be real, well, you never know how big they'll be. So we'll throw a caveat that maybe ice dragons are actually bigger. But this is cited by the Maesters. So according to Yandel in the World of Ice and Fire, that. Again, answer at the end. Ib and the Ibanese, and that which has helped George R. R. Martin create them. It's a quote-heavy episode. We've got a lot of influences today. You may recall us mentioning them in conjunction with Sarnor quite a bit, both in A Song of Ice and Fire and in Lovecraft's World. It's a neat set of influences. Clearly, as well, this episode fits very well as a companion to the Kingdom of Sarnor episode. You'll recognize a few of the names and places, and some of the historical events will come up again, but we'll be looking at them from the Ibanese side and, and maybe a couple other different angles. Right away, this appears to be an entirely different species. Maesters don't necessarily recognize them as that. But there seem to be enough differences to make that claim. Yandel says, quote, the Ibanese stand apart from the other races of mankind. And I want to start by kind of letting y'all weigh in. And, you know, you've, you've done your a little bit of reading or a lot of reading on this. 
Tim, what do you think? Do you think there are different species? I know we're not biologists here, but but how do you think of it? I look at them as like a diverging path of where humanoid creatures could go. I, I think when looking at Ib, there's three ways to approach it. Just like there's three ways to approach a lot of things in George's story, which would be the fantasy element, the Lovecraftian element, and the real world historical. So in the fantasy element, the Ibanese seem to be like George's take on Tolkien's dwarves. The Lovecraft, there's the men of Ib, the creatures of Ib, the Thuma, as characterized as named by Lynn Carter later on in the mythos. And then there's the real world historical parallel, which would be, I think, of Neanderthals and the idea of what if Neanderthals hadn't died out, but it were, had lived and evolved next to Homo sapiens. Right. Yeah, the Neanderthal one struck me as well. I, we have some notes on that later in the episode. Sean, what did you think? Did you, did you think about this? Or is that, did it just immediately strike you one way or the other and he didn't even think about it? No, I, I definitely thought about it. I Something like this wants me to clarify. Sometimes just the words we use are helpful in understanding something. Yeah. And so a race is like a human construct. Biologically, there's no race of horses or whatever. Species is the most defined or narrow biological classification we have. And so it could be that the, the Ebenezer are just a, a different race. And a species would be something they need, you need to be able to mate with each other and have kids, which I think also comes up in the stories that the maesters at one point say they can't, but we get stories of characters that say that they can. So there's clearly some... It's clearly unclear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly unclear. Another thing too, like think about Neanderthals, that it could be, that's this generic term that we have for like ancient, you know, pre, pre-humans or, or, you know, cavemen or what. But there's really a lot of different branches and divisions of, I don't even want to say homo sapiens because there's even branches and divisions of different homo species that have, come and gone and interacted at different times. I don't know how deep George dug into all that science. And that's a lot of that science is just in a, is more recent than what George was writing. You yeah, know? that's so, true. A lot uh, of that stuff is very new. Yeah, like they're so constantly I, discovering new things. I decided that probably he's in this sort of big picture idea that Tim just said is, what if this, you know, extinct branch of humanoid hadn't gone extinct, you know, and the details of whether or not they can breed or how their physical appearance might be different. He probably wasn't quite as worried about the details of the science of it as just another unique group of culture and individuals to have in the mix that I I wonder if he may have had some intent for that he never got to, or if he just wants to have some exotic stuff out there. Anyway. Yeah, I I agree with that. Y'all, those are good takes, y'all. What did you think, Ashea? Do you have a, a thought on this? We do, I mean, we do hear, like Sean said, about people from Ib and mixing with other people. And so, but we hear that there are some issues. So I think that makes sense because I feel like if you're having a very large child, women are more likely to not be able to have that child. Mm. You know, like, I feel like it makes sense that it can work one way and not the other, if you know what I mean? Like, and that's something that goes back to other thoughts that other authors have had about the idea of giants mating with humans. Yeah. The idea that like a giant woman could mate with a human man, but it can't go the other way around. It just doesn't physically, it just doesn't physically work. And I feel the same way. Like if you think about like the children of the forest, Mm. I wonder how much they could mate with a human who's also much larger than them. So I feel like, uh, it, yeah. it would work the same way with the children of the forest to human or to... That's yeah. a good point. I wonder too, and, and that's something I wanted to bring up because the children are 
more explicitly a different ray or a different species. But Sean, you brought up the point about biology as something that can but yeah, mate. But yeah, I think that the children are still homonyms, if you, you know, yeah, like... Yeah, kind of some form of homonym. Yeah, they're, they're, they're somewhat a, yeah. humanoid. Because, uh, yeah, because how do you classify something that sometimes produces viable offspring? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that you might be able to technically, biologically do it, but it might not physically work out. Mm. And yeah, it might kill and, the And mother. it's something... Yeah. Right. And so it's something that especially over time might either odds are not work out and one race becomes extinct or they become more and more separate. Or maybe over time, enough attempts do merge and you get a new homogenization that can work or something. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, we don't really and, you know, these types of things are measured in scales of scores of thousands of years. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, even as long as the history of Westeros is, it's not long enough for the evolution or merging of races to, to have That's true. come into play, as far as we could tell, not with any kind of storecraft. It's something H.P. Lovecraft, I can imagine, might have had some backroom experiment with someone <laughs> trying to merge I like, <laughs> races. I really like Christina Kay's comment here in the chat right now. She goes, oh, it's like Great Danes and Chihuahuas. <laughs> yes, yeah, like, try to picture there that happening. And like, <laughs> not, yeah. a gr- not not going to work most of the time. Like I, I have a doxy, a doxful, they're dash hound pit bull mixes and the dash hound is the father and it's a question of like, well, how did he get up there? Yeah, yeah. how did he even? That's a, that's a confident pup right there. <laughs> hey, mama, come here. Uh, you are tiny. Hmm. Yes, but I've got lots of confidence. Hmm. <laughs> and this platform. <laughs> yes, at the step. as a step ladder, which is very important right now. So yeah, what, what, no matter what you consider them, it, it's unusual because we look at the other things creatures that may or may not be different species that probably are different species. They're all like hiding or gone. The children, the Ephekevron, like they're either, they're not extinct, but well, the Ephekevron maybe, but they're certainly not out in the open. Very few people know they exist, even the children. And well, the Ebenezer are just, you know, they got cities and they're just out there. Every port you see, there's Ebenezer sailors and ships and yeah, they're just very much, very commonly part of the backdrop. Until doing this episode, I didn't realize just how often there's Ebony's sailors or Ebony's ships here and there. They're just it's constant. Like Catelyn, Theon, Tyrion, Daenerys. They all see Ebony's sailors. Arya, of course, because she's at the ports constantly. So that's really neat. Yeah. But, and the Ebony's not only are they not hiding, they go everywhere. They're like Johnny Cash. They go everywhere, man. <laughs> Ashai, Volantis, Lannisport, King's Landing, somewhere around. So yeah, not just the ports that we're familiar with, but the ports that we're not familiar with. And probably some other ones. They've got their own set of maps. They've got their own, yeah, they know stuff that, that the humans don't. They probably don't go, you know, into the deep jungles of Sathorios. They like cold weather, but no one goes there, probably. Some are islanders, maybe, but point being, some are islanders are also excellent navigators. They're the other great sailing people of the world. And they probably likewise have lots of secrets, places they've gone that most humans of Westeros and Essos don't know about. Thousands of years to explore and be bold seamen. But of course, Seafaring isn't all they do. That's certainly why they're out there so much. But we're talking about an entire people here, an ancient civilization. So let's explore. Starting with our first mention, the world of ice and fire, right here. The Lorathi also claimed dominion over the waters of Lorath Bay. But fishing fleets from Bravos and whalers and sealers out of Ib often venture into the bay. For Lorath does not have sufficient strength to make good its claim. 
that quote we had in the Lorath episode. Same for similar reasons. Lorath will come up a few times a day, given their proximity is sometimes role ally, sometimes enemy. But this isn't something that you get too bloody over, just fishing rights. I mean, in modern times, people can fight pretty hard for fishing rights, but I'm not sure there were giant wars fought over this huge region of ocean. I mean, people can fight over anything, but what's your, what's your take here, Tim? Do you think that we don't hear a lot about Ib and Lorath fighting, but history between the two of them may not filter out to the rest of the world. You know what I mean? Like they're, what happens between those two may not always make it into the Mister's books. Yeah, I think since we never really hear much about Ib and since we never really hear much about Lorath, like the un, this unspoken history from them is probably something that the Maesters just don't really talk about. Now, it'd be like a different story. If you were to actually go and talk to a Lorathi person, they'd probably have a different thing to say. And yeah. what strikes me is how Ib and Lorath used to be enemies and now are allies. And it, like you think of like real-world parallels, how often that happens. You think of like how mm. often the British and the French were at odds and now and now they're allies. Yeah, and one. I think a lot of that has to do with Valyria coming into the picture. Things mm. that you got that the enemies of old become the allies of new. Because Ib also had the same back and forth with the Sarnori. What was once what was once an enemy becomes an ally, and then as times change and then so things change and then they go back to war and they go back to fight bickering and infighting, and then another enemy appears. And I think Valyria had a lot to do with what really changed the relationship between Ib and Lorath. That's a really good point. Yeah, and and definitely the fall of Valyria had a huge impact on the changing of government in Ib, which we'll get to as we move forward through their chronology. We saw the same thing in Lorath. Lorath had very unusually distinct eras with different rulers, and that, I imagine, the Ibanese had different relationships with those different sets of rulers, whether they were the Andals, whether they were the maze makers, if Ibanese ever even knew them, or the people that came along later, the, the followers of the blind god and all that. So yeah, different possibilities. Whereas Ib did have at least one major government change, the fall of the god kings, which came not long after the doom. It doesn't sound like they had as many upheavals prior to that. But there probably were some unrecorded things, maybe not, probably not as dramatic as wiping out the entire population, starting over again, like on Lorath, <laughs> but still. I can imagine a lot of the conflict might have played out at sea also, oh, yeah. kind of yeah. like you know, the British and the Spanish, you know, ships attacking each other, sort of condoned by the governments, but you don't have all out war, you don't have cities being taken over, but it, but it doesn't mean there wasn't a conflict there. And, and, but the conflict might not have been definitive enough to have been tracked by history. Mm. You know, this Good ship point, attacked yeah. this ship. Yeah, right. It wasn't like a named battle or anything. You know, The Battle of John and Bob. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For some cod. Yeah, so they first appear in A Song of Ice and Fire in Danny One. Hey, so the first appearance, first mention is really early. And it's this exact same quote that's come up so many times now, underscoring how George R. Martin likes to introduce a high concentration of important elements in early chapters especially because originally he was planning three books. So there was more he was trying to concentrate in a smaller space to set up. And then, you know, eventually he realized he had a little more time. But y'all will definitely recognize this one. It probably won't be the last time we cite it either. Eventually he realized he had a little more time, he says. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's out of context. That doesn't quite work, does it? <laughs> okay, here's the quote. Many Dothraki horse lords 
big men with red-brown skin, their drooping mustachios bound in metal rings, their black hair oiled and braided and hung with bells. Yet among them moved bravos and sellswords from Pentos and Mir and Tyrosh, a red priest even fatter than Illyrio, hairy men from the port of Ivan, and lords from the summer isles with skin as black as ebony. So the presence of the two great sailing peoples there, the Summer Isles and the Port of Ibn, the Ibanese is a little interesting given that there's a lot of other peoples not represented there, yet you have these two kind of far off ones. And I wonder if this was George gardening sailing nations because he knew Danny was going to need a way to get over with her armies. Maybe he at this point had decided it would be the Great Joys. Maybe he thought maybe it would be multiple navies. With the Red Priest there, we can see how that ties in. We can see how Pentos ties into her. The Tyrosh and Mir, that's, you know, cell swords and Dario, other stuff. That's less clear at this point, but you can see where it's going. I thought of this as more, uh, two things really, maybe symbolic mm. of the, the meaningfulness of this, of this so meeting. So many. Right? How yeah. people from far and wide are going. And also how word is going to spread. Mm. People from these distant places are going to take the news back. That's a great point. Yeah, because the, anytime you have the sailing people around... You know the news is going to spread. Tim, would you have any a take on this? Yeah, I would say it's it probably is George planting seeds, and but not every seed you plant sprouts. True that. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that something George planned didn't go out. Like Danny was originally supposed to go to a shy. That's not happening. True. The True. five year the five year time skip. That's not happening. Yep. So yep. sometimes you, you, you it just like it just like you said it seems like he's laying some seeds, seeing what could grow in these particular seeds. Nothing substance-wise, at least for the main story, grew. But as far as side stories, like the world of ice and fire, well, that's where you really get your your sprouts. Yeah, definitely. Good call. So let's move on to Ib itself. So we've got a little bit of setup from our first mentions and some ideas of maybe setting, planting our own seeds on how the rest of this episode is going to go. <laughs> let's have our first quote on Ib itself, a description from the world of ice and fire. Through the centuries, many different peoples have made their homes upon the shores and islands of the Shivering Sea and sent their mariners across its chilly gray-green waters. The most enduring and significant of these are the Ibanese, an ancient and taciturn race of islanders who have fished the northern seas since the dawn of days from their homes upon the Ibish Isles. So to be clear, Ib is an island? The island, the nation is called Ibn. Ib includes the port of Ibn and Ibnor, which is another city. Ibnor, it's like north. And Far Ib, which is another island, but part of Ibn, the nation, is, contains the city Ibsar. Nina says Ibsar and Ibnor certainly remind me of the naming conventions of the Sarnori and the Roinar. You might wonder if there was some peaceful contact between those and they may have inter- influenced each other on language and certain cultural things and as well as likely commercial slash political alliances of other types that lasted and didn't last. And, you know, a variety of ups and downs of history. There's like four other small islands directly south of Ib. We don't have names for them, but there's certainly people living on them, apparently. And there's this town called New Ibish on the mainland itself. We'll have more to say about that. But that's also all part of the nation of Ibn. And the people, of course, are called the Ibanese. They live in this area called the Shivering Sea, which is this huge ocean, and the Bay of Wales, which is directly south of the island. So the, the name Ib is taken from Lovecraft's story, The Doom That Came to Sarnath, as we pointed out at the time. And Sarnath also appears as a Sarnori city, now destroyed Sarnath of the Two Towers. So some of y'all remember that. But there's a lot of other 
Lovecraft Easter eggs. Tim, why don't I let you go for a minute here and tell us about some of your favorite Lovecraft Easter eggs in he- here and elsewhere, if you want, in, in, on the map while we've got you here. Gosh. <laughs> uh, sure. So, so with these Lovecraft Easter eggs, what George seems to do is he'll take the name and then he'll tweak it a little bit, make it his own, but then elements of that same Lovecraft setting will appear elsewhere. He does this with Ib, where... Ib in the Doom of Sarnath is a city populated by these squisher-like beings that sits opposite the lake of Sarnath. Now here, he has it more of a different, they're not squishers, but squishers will appear in many different areas throughout the story. But he does keep the gloomy gray setting that Ib of Lovecraft has. The port of Ibn is described as gloomy and gray. In Lovecraft's story, the men of Ib revere a stone idol of a water lizard called Bokrug. Now we've seen stone idols appear again, the greasy black stone. There's the toad, the toad statue on Toad Isle. There's the sea stone chair, things like that. These are Lovecraft things that George is taking and tweaking into his own. Then there's also places like Lang, Kadath, and Carcosa. And Carcosa is something that isn't even originally Lovecraft. That's something Lovecraft ripped from his own contemporaries. <laughs> that was passed uh, down I, like the fantasy, like it's like a fantasy hand-me-down name. <laughs> And that's the thing with Lovecraft, especially like the Cthulhu mythos, it, it really is like a living, breathing text because so many writers came after Lovecraft from Duralith to Lynn Carter to James Bleach, and it's still ongoing with all the comics and video games. Like, there's been so many fingers in that pie, it doesn't have a crust anymore. <laughs> it can be ripped. That's why for, like, for Lovecraft fans, deciding what's canon and what's not canon it really, it, it's it's so hard because so many different writers have come and gone and put their own spin on things. Yeah, I don't even know how you would handle that. I, I I feel like we're almost lucky with the Game of Thrones where we really only have like show canon, book canon. Eventually, there will be more. I mean, this this universe is expanding. I mean, 20 years from now, there will, 30, 50 years from now, there'll have been other people have put their finger in the pie as well. We're, <laughs> we're, much, we're much earlier in that phase, I suppose you could say. But if you look at, there's, there's plenty of other examples like that where there's just games, books, role-playing games, and computer games. Sometimes sometimes multiple computer games, sometimes other side games. Yeah, and it just does get... Sometimes we take for granted how easy the canon is in <laughs> Song of Ice and Fire compared to other <laughs> fandoms. Star Wars, like Star Wars eliminated like a hundred books from their canon or something. And then some of, but some of them are being brought back in. Like, I don't even know. Yeah, it, it is. We do have it easy compared to that. You said, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. Now, I want you to think about this. <laughs> 51 years. Oh, 51 years. That'd be so much. 52 years. Oh, whoa. <laughs> You're going too far. <laughs> hey, at, least, at least we have the knowledge that George has given his seal, like on things like House of the Dragon and possibly the Corliss show and A Thousand Ships and the E.T. animated show. At least these have George's seal of approval while he's still with us. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Unlike, but, say, Christopher Tolkien, who was just hating on the <laughs> Lord of the Rings show before it even comes out. He's like, no, nope. Of course, he was mad with the movies. So he was, it's not just the show. He didn't want the movies either. So, you know, there's no pleasing some people. But hey, he's entitled to his opinion. Let's talk about the, the greater region, do a little comparisons. Here's another quote from The World of Ice and Fire. Ib is the second largest island in the known world. Only Great Morak, between the Jade and Summer Seas, is larger. Stony and mountainous, Ib is a land of great gray mountains, ancient forests, and rushing rivers. Its dark interior, a haunt of bears and wolves. Giants once dwelt on Ib, we are told, but none remain. 
though mammoths still roam the island's plains and hills, and in the higher mountains, some claim unicorns can be found. Hmm. Now, George has compared it size-wise to Iceland. Now, not necessarily a lot of other things, but we, he also said the same thing about Lorath. It's, I mean, it is, this is bigger than Lorath, but not a lot bigger than Lorath. And like Lorath, there's no volcanoes that we know of. Maybe there are, but it doesn't seem like it. If you're looking at it on a flat map, it's roughly parallel at the north point of Ib to Carhold. And at the farthest point south of the island, it lines up roughly with White Harbor. So it kind of gives you an idea of, of how far it is. It's kind of like a sideways Z almost. It's not really much farther west than Carth. It's, it's about as far east as Carth is, but just on the far north. Anything past here is unknown, especially on that side, because on the south side beyond Carth, there's E.T. and Ashai. I mean, those are mysterious, but they're, they're not super, super mysterious. Well, maybe Ashai is super mysterious, but E.T. isn't. But up here to the east of Ib, there's just not much at all. It's, it's not just unexplored, but if it's explored by the Ibanese, they haven't told us. But there's not like a lot of civilizations. There's not like a lot of cities and people. It's not robust like E.T. I wish I had annotated it, Aziz, but I remember reading somewhere, I'm pretty sure it was in The World of Ice and Fire, pretty sure it was Yandel kind of speculating his perspective was it it seems to be that the world is round. And if we could sail up through the north, we should come back down around the other side. It's an interesting perspective of like the like, way well, we think about sailing like a roller around coaster. The world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were thinking of sailing like north around to the south instead of east yeah. around or west around to the Flips. east or whatever. But, if you get too far north, you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and that's the uh, go, go ahead, Tim. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to go on because like they say like sailors have tried to find this fabled northern passage and they either get lost, their ships get stuck, or if they're lucky enough to return, they come back half frozen, just complaining that there's nothing out there. And we're told that the white waste, it grows and recedes. So it's kind of like, I, I think of it like the Arctic. Now, like Antarctica, underneath the ice, there is an, a continent, there's land, but the Arctic isn't. It's an ice sheet. It hugs mm. like Greenland and Canada and the Russian far north, but there's no actual proper continent. And I think like that's how the white waste acts. Yeah. And that is constantly growing and receding, that it's freezing and then melting and then refreezing and ships that are looking for a northern passage since the weather and the the season since the seasons on planetos are so unpredictable you never have a good way of knowing like when the white waste is going to be open when's the best time to sail through it mm. and what are the dangerous times when the waters behind you are going to freeze back over nice okay that's that's insightful i didn't know that stuff do you think the ebenezer maybe have gone farther north than humanity i would i mean i keep saying human i keep assuming i keep phrasing it as if they're definitely a different species but Whatever. Question stands. <laughs> Actually, I do. Like, the implication we get from that summer, sorry, summer islanders, that their chart makers, their map makers, have probably have an idea of what's where the southern coast to the southern tip of Sothorios is. Like, they probably know what's further south of the Green Hell, which is where, where the maesters know. And I have a feeling that the Ibanese, because we get the knowledge that the Thousand Islands isn't actually a thousand, it's only about 300. That's because of knowledge that Ibanese map makers have been kind enough to share. Mm -hmm. So I do think that the Ibanese probably do know more about what's really out in the Shivering Sea. Like if anyone's sailing to Mossaby, the far reaches of the east, it's probably them. Yeah. If there is a northern passage, if they know about it, well, that's definitely something they'd want to keep under wraps. You think of real world, how 
see how trade routes were kept secret. How like how the Dutch sat on trade routes of like sailing and really valuable because you yeah. want to maintain control over that. And I think of like Karth and their control over the Jade Gates. Then there's a uh, Yeet. We don't even there's the Saffron Straits that run through Ulthos, and I'm sure it's either Yeet or a Shy that are dominating that. Well, if there's any kind of passages in the Shivering Sea, Ib being the foremost power, at least that we know of, would want to have that under lock. My my headcanon sort of is is the three hundred the thousand islands slash the three hundred islands are just worthless. So that's why they don't mind sharing that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we don't care. You guys can know everything about this. There's nothing there's no valuable trade routes there, right? Like it's all flooded, yeah. ancient, overrun. Yeah, there's not there's nothing there but ancient mystery and, and archaeology. No, no, no money, no loot, no value. Or or not just that, but hard to get too hard to get to it. Like we that talked too, yeah, before probably. about one value of maps is just knowing where you can approach an island, where it's not cliffs or coral or whatever. And it may just be all those islands. You just can't get a boat up to them. And so sure, yeah. go ahead and try. Yeah, yeah. Good luck be that. our yeah. guest. <laughs> like, the, thousand Islanders, the Thousand Islanders don't seem like the type of people that are building ports. Yeah. Without, especially <laughs> with how xenophobic they are. They're not going to be building anything yeah. that's going to allow ships to easily dock. True that. That's the where the sea snake said the fish was... Didn't even, even the fish from the sea didn't taste right. So yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, that they were bitter. And that's also too, like that's the farthest Corliss goes. and. I don't doubt that Corliss probably would have continued further east if he could, but it was his crew. They saw those green skinned fish people and they're like, no, you turn back now. We're far. not going any further. <laughs> this is this is too much. This is too you much. You were wondering when it was too much. This is too much. We've found well, it. I draw the line when the people start screwing the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When their teeth are sharp and yeah, they look half fish like yeah, that's that is too far. So you mentioned the white waste. Is there any friendly competition between the gray waste and the white waste? Is that like a, do you guys have like a rivalry there? <laughs> Screw those white waste guys. Yeah, it's all gray waste all the way. Yeah. So the giants, this, this thing about giants being extinct on the island of Ib, well, there's only really one way they could have gone extinct that I can think of, which is the Ebenese killing them all. Obviously, it wasn't. Other people coming there to Ib just to kill their giants. That doesn't sound very likely. Tim, where do you fall on this? Do you think this is accurate? Or should we just take all these survey data that we get from Yandel and information about what is and isn't extinct there? Should we take a lot of that with a grain of salt? After all, later we're going to discuss that the Ibanese don't really let people explore their entire nation outside of this port. That you need a special invitation to leave the port. So, So how do we have any sort of confidence in things like giants are extinct on it. Like, why would we, how, how could we have confidence in such a declaration? Do you think they might still be around? I do. Like, I think we do have to take every, really, we have to take like everything the maesters <laughs> say with a grain of salt. Good point, good point. blood taught us anything. Three grains of salt here at least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, with, with the Ibides being so protective over the interior of Ib, not letting anyone pass the port of Ibn without an escort and how rare it seems like that, that, that those happen. Like you really got to be some besties with an Ibidese person that seems to get past the port yeah. and actually see. So there could be definitely giants, mammoths, unicorns out there. It's like, think of like the most, like the most well-guarded nature preserve. Like we're not like, like and if, if the Ibidese being like this sort of separate race and the way that they get treated by others, if they see how Westeros, and especially 
with them being on Essos and how rampant slavery is across Essos, they might see and be like, no, we're not letting you in here to see all this because we've seen what you've done to your own native mm. inhabitants. Think of like how the yeah. giants have died out, how few giants are left in Westeros and how giants are basically extinct in Essos. There were the stone giants that were killed by the, I believe it was the, the Jogos Nye. Yeah, I think that's right. Wiped, yeah. wiped out the stone giants. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great a great take. The other thing to consider potentially is that as we explored in our episode when giants roamed with Crowfood's daughter, there's a possibility that Ibanese are have a distant relationship to the giants, and maybe the hairy men are like a interconnect, you know, a, a midpoint in that branching, a connector perhaps. So it would be perhaps wrong to kill them if they're that closely related, or. If they did kill them off, maybe that implies they aren't actually related. Nina suggests maybe it's like a keep-to-yourself situation. They leave the giants alone. The giants leave them alone. Maybe there's a little bit of trade. Maybe there's a little tribute one way. Maybe the giant. Maybe it's part of the deal. Human, the, the Ibanese tell everyone the giants are gone so that no one comes looking for them. Yeah, like a little conservation. Yeah, maybe, they're, maybe they have a little bit of conservation streak in them, or at least some of them do. I wonder if they ride mammoths, those giants, because they have mammoths. <laughs> so if we have giants riding mammoths uh, north of the wall, maybe they, uh, maybe they do the same. <laughs> I present this hesitantly because I'm not sure if George bothered to think that much about the science behind it. But it could be that giants evolved in separate branches in separate areas of the world, just yeah, like yeah. humans did on Earth. Yeah, the stone giants were like and, twice uh, as large as other ones, so they seem to be different. Yeah. Of, yeah. And, and also it could be less... Hmm, Sinister, uh, the the giants, if they are extinct on Ib, that it could just be some disease went through oh. them. That maybe even without realizing it, the 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 Ibanese might have spread it to the giants, and they just point. have more immunity, yeah. or they could just be using up more resources. If the giants are a little bit less, I don't know, ambitious, mm. it, it might not be active warring, but they just might end up turning more of their farm and hunting lands. The Ibanese might just start using up more and more research sources. The giants have less. Yeah. Even if they're not completely extinct, pushed to such a small area, which again, the Ibanese might have even recognized that was happening and, and are trying to curb that. Yes. Yeah. And, and tying all this together as well, the Ibanese now are confined almost entirely to Ib, though not, not entirely, mostly confined to Ib. But at their peak, they had a chunk of Essos larger than their islands. So you wonder if in that era there were still some giants or if they, you know, you want, I, don't, I don't know if this necessarily needs to be a connected subtopic, but. I think about that when they were at their largest versus when they were now when they're mostly at just their island again. We, we made a little bit of comparison to Ib to maybe Iceland, yeah. or if we didn't, we're going to. I was wondering, how does it compare maybe to Australia? Hmm. Like size-wise, specifically, I'm actually asking, but maybe in other ways there's comparison. Well, Australia is a lot bigger than Iceland, so I guess it would be, although Australia is, is an awful lot of it's unlivable. But at least for people. <laughs> so it was Iceland. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it it that's a good pretty, point. Yeah, it looks pretty big on the map. It like does, when yeah. you, if you, you know, if you compare, if, if it's accurate, compare it to like North. It's like a pretty big. Well, George said North. same size as Iceland, and Australia is a lot bigger. Yeah, than size is same yeah. size as Iceland. I okay. guess to be okay. fair, when I think about it, 
on a on the traditional maps that we see here in the U.S., Australia doesn't look as big as it actually is either. Oh yeah, uh, the flat map thing throws off Australia because it's in the corner. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it isn't in the corner, so that probably isn't throwing it off. Yeah, and obviously Australia isn't literally in the corner. It's just how yeah, maps yeah. always seem <laughs> to present it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like another common thing in real world maps. Like Australia is presented as smaller. A lot of times Tasmania is missing entirely. Yeah, yeah. Africa is always presented as smaller than it really is. And Greenland is all... And and that's where I feel like Iceland... I mean, George says Iceland, but I feel like Greenland is a better really? is a better comparison for Ib. Okay, based on how based on size and also based on how how hard it is to get, how hard it is to travel through there. Now with okay. Ib, it's because they're they're not letting you pass the port of Ibn, but with Greenland, it's because of just how few roads there are, how few towns there really are, because most of it is covered in in ice sheets. Yeah, like ancient ice too, ice that's been there for like millions of years. It's wild to think about, isn't it? So unicorns, of course, we can't skip over that one either now, can we? First connection to unicorns, you makes makes you think of Skagos. That's one of the only other places you hear of of that. And Skagos is not on a different parallel too much. I mean, it's very far west of Ib, but only a little bit farther north. And it's also an island. And there's, right, there's a prevailing theory that the unicorns are goats or woolly rhinos or some species that's similar to those. and. There's also perhaps a genetic connection between the Skagosi and the Ibanese. We'll come back to that. Nina suggests or mentions the, the note in the World of Ice and Fire that Yandel makes reference to disreputable merchants selling supposed unicorn horns that are actually whale horn from, that are hunted by the Ibanese, which would be a narwhal, right? Because narwhals are a real thing that have, have horns. And also apparently selling narwhal horns as purported unicorn horns could prevent poisoning. Apparently, one of those can poison the, I don't know. So that's interesting. You wonder if, just like the giants, if there are giants there, they're not giving it away at all. They're not like selling their bones or anything on the market. Likewise, if there really are unicorns on Ib, they're not selling the horns on the, on the market that we know of. At least if they are, they're, they're so small. It's like a black market thing or a small, such a small scale thing that it doesn't catch the attention of the maesters. But there's also dragon bones. That is perhaps the most surprising because while dragon bones are pretty widespread, cold weather environment, that that doesn't quite sound, you know, there's only a little odd about that. It's not, it's not crazy, but it's a little strange. What do you think, Tim? Do you think dragons lived there or just a few maybe got killed there? If you think they got killed there, do you think they are Valyrian? Or what What do you think about... If, also, if you want to weigh in on unicorns, feel free. But I think dragons, unicorns, any of the bones you want to weigh in on here, go for it. I think if dragons lived there, it would have been at a time... Like, let's... Because we don't... George hasn't gone too deep into the like the formation of Plantos. But if we think of, like, the continents of Westeros and Essos forming through the way... Earth's plate tectonics did, how Pangea originally broke up. Maybe there's a chance that dragons at once lived there and then as it shifted and ended up in the colder environment, that's when they went extinct. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's that's going off of, uh, like, if we're talking, like, real-world scientific, this is a fantasy story, so <laughs> it does, not everything's grounded in that. But one thing that I did mentioned earlier was how possible Valyrian incursions into Ib, and that's what drives Ib to ally with past enemies like the like Lorath and Sarnor. Mm. If it is, 
invade, like if they weren't native dragons, but instead are the remains of invading dragons from Valyria. Like we've seen, like dragons, even though dragons are our, like nuke metaphor, they are able to take down. Like the Dor- Dorn went through so many years of independence because of their ability to kill dragons. Yeah, and it's possible that the Ibides, if if they had to fend off Valyria. Maybe some dragons went down and just flub, and these are the remains of them. It makes sense. The to other, me. the other thing I think of too, though, is that how much of dragon bone that we know that that's that's stayed here might actually be dinosaur bone. Mm-hmm. Like we, George Oslo's played with the idea of dinosaurs. Like there's that. It sounds a lot like Velociraptors. I believe the Sea Lord of Bravos keeps one as menagerie. Yeah, and then far out in the east, there's the the dry deep and bone town where they deal in strange bones and maybe it could be like like real world earth there are just certain hot spots for dinosaur bones like the gobi desert or my my fiance is a huge fan of jurassic park and one thing she wants to do she wants us to go to north dakota because there are trips you can take there to dig up actually go on a real dig for dinosaur bones and you're allowed to keep things that you find oh that's cool you're telling me that that the real deal with bone town is that <laughs> i can go find some dinosaur fossils there we, we were hoping it was a place where all the boning happens this yeah. is cool too i guess yeah, I, I guess, guess. <laughs> I don't know, you know boning or dinosaur which would you choose <laughs> boning dinosaur get your mind out of the gutter <laughs> no <laughs> so I, I do have a thought here on dragons in the ebenese now this is potentially something cool. The Ibanese intentionally go hunt the largest things. They go after whales. They, they hunt them specifically. And occasionally they run into even bigger things, the bigger sea creatures, and they have to deal with that. They have harpoons. They, they're really good with this, killing large things. Would it really be that difficult to adapt a harpoon to shoot up instead of into the sea? You know? So I could see how, like, yeah, even I mean, the like, mechanism yeah, for how they killed a dragon or two would... Could be something like this. Yeah, you can kill a leviathan, a whale, like you know, dragon of the water. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, they're, they they specifically seek these things out. So I mean, those things don't breathe fire. Dragons a little more dangerous. But if it was a matter of defense, like we said, the Valerians come and then yeah, then yeah, shoot some harpoons at them, see what happens. Yeah, they'd be familiar with the idea of like, oh, they've got they've got their weak. Points, they you know you can still go for the eye and the mouth, or you hit the rider because like a yeah. like a Valyrian steel might stop some arrows, but I don't know if Valyrian even Valyrian steel might might you know, a harpoon might just knock you out of your saddle, you know, even yeah. if it doesn't pierce the armor. So, yeah, isn't Ib like if you were to compare Ib across the world, where does it? How far north is it compared to the wall? It's south of the wall. By a little bit. But not, not a huge amount, but yeah. It's, it's near the wall. Yes. I, I, remember I, I line, remember the northern imagine. point of it lines up with Carhold, which is pretty far north. So yeah, it's pretty, it's maybe, I don't know, 100 leagues. I don't know. <laughs> it, we, we've gotten indications that dragons can't go beyond the wall. Yeah, yeah there is a right? hint of that. Yeah. Might, but, is it the wall itself I, or the, the, yeah. Right. And I wonder, is it just binary? Or is there just this magic line they can't cross? Or is it the farther north they get, the weaker they get? Mm. They, they, they feel drained, they're cold, oh, they don't like it, whatever it is. Yeah. And the, Birds and with their maybe, magnetic, you know, they can tell like parallels and longitude and stuff yeah. that, that we're not entirely sure what, what it is they're doing, but they have locating and echo stuff. Maybe dragons have that too. 
And so maybe uh, while they're in it, maybe the dragon riders are like, hey, let's go check out or attack this island. But then when they get there, the dragon's are like, well, slow down. Yeah, I'm like, this is dizzy cold now. Man. You know, like <laughs> I can't stay up this high. Yeah. And, and that makes it more vulnerable to being attacked or, or falling out of the sky and ending up on the land and dying or being killed or whatever else. Yeah. I mean, if they came for Loras, why not come for Ib? It's, you know, they're, they're kind of parallel, right? Just proved harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Moving on, the the Valyrian expansion into Ib. You've got a note here on on slaves here, Tim. This is I think this is your note. So yeah, we have. There's a big interesting note on the Ibanese and how they're such a stubborn people that they are difficult to enslave. Shall we say they're not? They're, they just won't do it. So they a lot of them end up as in the fighting pits where you know we're not only yeah. going to be violent. Well, that's where you get put. So what do you have to say about this? This is another reason why the Valyrians would have come to Ib for sure. Yeah, so it says like the Ibides, they're too ugly for bed slaves, <laughs> too savage to be field hands, and many end up dying in the Marinese fighting pits. And then that got me thinking, well, how, how are Ibides ending up in Marine? There's no direct sea route, at least not that we know, unless you're sailing east and all the way. That allows you to go across where the map cuts out. Then the only way to sail from Ib to Marine would be go all the way back west down the narrow sea and then go all the way around Essence. So it's like, well, how are Ibanese ending up in Marine? Well, they're probably driven over there by land. Mm. And Dothraki, definitely, if they're enslaving people, Ibanese on the Ibanese colonies on Essos, that's how they could get there. That's but Dothraki don't sail. So if there's actual native Ibanese from the island of Ib, then how they would end up in Marine to fight to be in the fighting pits would mean they were being plucked by someone who can travel both land, sea, and also by probably by air, mm. which would be the Valyrian. Yes. So I see like Ibanese being corralled down into like Karth and Marine and places that far south, far away from Ib by the Valyrians. And like you said, like if they took Lorath, what's to stop them from going to Ib? Like you think Valyria as our Rome parallel, Rome would have kept going. They made it to Britain and they would have kept going farther north if not for like Hadrian's Wall and the Scots. <laughs> yeah. You know, with how many Ibanes we've seen, it makes sense to me that they might have some small communities in different cities, you know, around the world. Like in Lorath, there might be That's a true. small Ibanese you know, community, just like how we have like a little Italy or a Chinatown, there might be like yeah, little, little yeah. Ib or something. It wouldn't necessarily show up on the map, but yeah, it, it wouldn't show up on the map. There, but yeah. if you live in Bravos, you're like, oh, over the, that's where all the Ibanese people live is over in that, that part of Bravos. That totally like, makes in sense. In Bravos in particular, I feel like there was, there's got to be a good sized Ibanese population there. Oh, yeah. And there were Ibanese amongst the initial founders of Bravos. Yeah, so some like, of those yeah. Were so, Ibanese slaves. So a lot of the people, slaves and people in the fighting pits could come from some of those colonies and, and places around the world too, I think. Although, that makes a lot um, of sense. I, yeah, yeah. I like that. The Ironborn as well range that far. The Ironborn definitely go all the way to Ib. And so they would, while they can't, you don't have slave slavery in Westeros, they have thralls. There's nothing stopping Ironborn from selling slaves in foreign markets. They just wouldn't be able to bring them back to Westeros. So they could take Ibanese, go sell them somewhere, and then go back home in Westeros with just their loot. So that's got to be a possibility as well. I like the idea that the Ironborn try to take the Ebenese and fail. Yeah. I think I prefer <laughs> that too, especially if it's, in, if it's a matter of slavery. Yes, absolutely. Root against the slavers in all cases, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I consider that maybe some of the Ebenese slaves were just like ships that were captured yeah. or sailors that were captured. There's bound to be a few of those. But I, thought, I don't know how likely it is. They make the Ebenese both as a people to be tough and as sailors yeah. and their ships to be tough. 
I don't know how likely it is for that to be the way they're getting captured and sold into slavery. Not impossible, but not the regular. I agree with that. Also, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like their ships are really tough and yeah, like they've got harpoons and they would fight really, yeah. Sailors aren't the, in general, sailors aren't a soft folk. So, <laughs> and Ivanese sound even tougher. So you, Tim, you've got to mention here about a couple other like points here that are pretty interesting. Why don't you go ahead and walk us through some of these? Sure. When we're talking also about Tolkien's dwarves, one thing that made me think of was like how Ibanez, aside from their homeland on Ib, they've basically been driven out of every other settlement that they tried to set up. Yeah. And that's like a lot like the dwarves in Tolkien. The waking of the Balrog leads to the destruction of their capital mm. by the Moria. And then later on, they are driven again out by smog. So, but we think of like, well, if we think of this on in Tolkien, so they're driven out by a literal dragon, but on a symbolic sense in this story, what would be the dragons if not Valyrians? And the that one Dothraki call we'll get to eventually, who was pretty important in driving them out. His nickname was the Dragon of the North. So yeah. there you go. That's awesome. Great catch. That's cool. And the Doom of the Valyria, you say that's compared to the Waking of the Balrog, right? That's pretty neat. That is- yeah, yeah. The Doom of the Valyria has been compared numerous times to the Waking of the Balrog. So the Waking of the Balrog leads to the death of King Durin VI. And if we're thinking this Ibanese dwarf line, well, the fall of the god kings of Ib coincides with the Doom of Valyria in the Century of Blood. And that makes sense. Like when you think of as something as cataclysmic as the Doom of Valyria, something like that is going to have far-reaching ripple effects. This is where we see, like, okay, the old, the old big power is down. Now everyone's scrambling to get to the new one to become the new power. This is where we see, like, the rise of the Dothraki on yeah. the grasslands, the fall of the Sarnori. Like, this is the time for kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to die. Like, it's make, it's make or break at this point. So it, may, it makes sense to me that major political upheavals would have happened, not just in it, but all throughout Essos. All, everything that Valyria touched is now now has to find a new way of doing things. This is how we end up with the, the free cities that we know and their constant skirmishes of everyone trying to be that next great big power. Yeah, well said, well said. Is it one of the free cities? No, no. Lorath is. No, I didn't but, think so. I just yeah, want to clarify. Right. I think it, I would. I would say more about that. It's not a free city, but with its proximity to the free city, and like you said, like you said, like when when an empire like Valyria falls, and I would imagine the same if we go back even further history. Like let's say like the Great Empire of the Dawn, and the successor states that came out of that, like Yt and the Shadowlands. Like when a major empire falls, when you have been the world's number one power for so long, like Valyria five. 5,000 years of dominance, and then you're just wiped out basically in a day, that is going to have major life-altering impact on essentially everything yeah, around global. you. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So there's a really odd mention in early on of the port of Ibn and mammoths. Tyrion thinks that Balerion was large enough to eat a mammoth from the wastes beyond the port of Ibn, which is such an obscure thing for him to think. And I'm like, I, I, I spent some time thinking about this. Like, what does this mean? Is this like, why doesn't he mention the mammoths in Westeros? Like that, like the one beyond the wall. Like he had been to the wall, you know. Like that would have been fresher in his mind. So I wonder if George was like trying to get us to think of Ibn, maybe think wonder, of the dragon bones, you know, that were there. Do you think it's ever possible that like Tyrion saw like a traveling animal show? 
like a menagerie, like came through Cash to the Rock with like an Ibanese whaler and like a mammoth. That the I, 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 it's kind Ooh. of a crazy thought to picture, but like you're right that him thinking of it makes it seem like he has, or maybe like he read a story when he was young that was about an Ibanese whaler and like a ma- and mammoths, and like it just like stuck in his brain as a memorable thing. For Tyrion, reading something makes sense. <laughs> yeah, reading something makes sense. Makes but that makes more sense than him transporting a mammoth across the sea. Mm. But someone doing that makes sense to me too, because you could make a lot of money by doing a, like a traveling zoo. That makes me think. Oh, okay, so a couple of points is like one: maybe Ibanese mammoths are bigger. Okay, yeah. Like, we, we, think, like, like we already talked about how that, this, <laughs> like how yeah. the stone giants were bigger than the Westerosi giants, and then real world example: how African elephants are larger than Asian elephants. Ah, true, but considerably larger, right? Yeah. And then also just the point that Shay brought up of like tra- trying to transport a mammoth across the sea. It's like, you sort of see that the Golden Company trying to get a whole bunch of elephants. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> You're right. And, and Corliss, Corliss also tried to bring elephants back to Westeros. They all died along the way, but he tried. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> One other, I don't know, bit of insight. I'm pretty sure as a kid, I, I wish I had to give a better number, but I'm guessing as a five-year-old kid, I knew what a tiger was and a lion was. And I knew they were big cats from Africa or whatever. I don't know that there were cougars in the Rocky Mountains. I don't know if I was aware of that as a kid, Mm. that there were lion-type cats near me. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, it does. So I can imagine Tyrion, like you were saying, like maybe read a book or saw a drawing as a young kid and had this image of mammoths from Ib and didn't even know there were mammoths in Westeros. That's possible, yeah, sure. So let's move on to Far Ib, which we have a description of, and it will spark some more discussion. Far Ib, the second largest of the Ibanese islands, lies more than 100 leagues south of Ib itself and is altogether a bleaker and poorer place. Ibsar, its only town, was originally a place of exile and punishment, where the Ibanese of old sent their most notorious criminals, often after mutilating them so they might never return to Ib itself. Though that practice ended with the fall of the god kings, Ibsar retains an unsavory reputation to this very day. I know shade on Australians, but that is how Australia started with as a prison colony. That's not how it started entirely. That's how it started, you know, British started using it. Obviously, there were people there already, but prison islands are a thing in fiction and the real world. I mean, Gaston Gray is a prison island in Dorne. Dune has the famous planet Seleucus Secunda for, to create the Sardaukar and all that. So that's a pretty big recurring thing. That also makes it interesting. You're like, hmm, what is it? What, is, what has happened here? That's fascinating. There's another one I could think of. John Varley, the author John Varley, had Pluto become a prison planet in the far future. And, or Charon, the moon, of, the moon of Pluto became a prison planet. And the same kind of thing. Like eventually the bad guys just started coming back off of They built ships and became like this solar system mafia. <laughs> anyway, kind of neat, but very much off topic. What is the thing about mutilating them first? That's, that's nasty. Nina says it reminds her of Byzantine political mutilation. You blind them or cut off a limb or slit the nose. Something that makes you really blatantly, visually, quote unquote, imperfect, which disqualifies them for high office. So it's a little, a little nicer than just killing them, but it's still really gruesome. The mutilation similarly might permanently make them shun. Like it's something that's you can't not see. And so everyone's going to know this is, you're a criminal, you were judged cer- certain way. What do you think about all this, Tim? What's your, uh, what are your thoughts on Ibsar? Uh, like when we think of mutilation as a punishment, like branding can be used as a punishment. True. I yeah. use the example yeah. of the Scarlet Letter. Oh, yeah. How you can, 
yes, certain criminals will have like a letter branded into their skin, like T for thief, A for adulterer, B for blasphemy, and things like that. Mm. And it also made me think more of like Tog Joth. He's the Ibanese member of the Brave Companions, aka the Bloody Mummers. If if, if this is where these are, because the bloody mummers are supposed to be made up of criminals and outcasts. Mm. And it makes me think like we never get a physical description of this character. True. But if there were an Ibanese criminal in the story, he, he'd seem like a prime candidate. So maybe he's one of these scarred Ibanese who's like, I can't return home because this. They know. They would immediately marks, see. Marks from being able to return home. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So. Another thing I've thought of, I'm a, I'm a big anime fan, and two things I'm really excited about are, are the return of Bleach and the return of Hunter Hunter chapters. And if there's any Hunter Hunter fans in the audience, they might know of the Kaken Empire, where their bastard children of the Emperor are scarred. with a, they're, they're scarred over their face, and this is to show that they are a royal bastard, but is to nullify any claims to the throne that they can have. Hmm. And I just thought the idea of like mutilation for that just seemed like interesting to me as a way of just marking someone to stand out so that they're always an outcast. They're always otherwise someone can always look and be like, I know exactly what you are. Yeah, there's been lots of real world examples of this. They're not always mutilation. Sometimes they're just you have to wear something. But yeah, it's the same. It's the same concept. Yeah, marking somebody's other. It's really terrible. I, I do want to find some, I don't know how to say it, a positive light to shed on the MBDs. It did say they're most notorious criminals. Yeah. So they didn't just do this willy-nilly. Yeah, anyone. it's not you just had to really be. Yeah. And even a notorious criminal, they didn't burn them alive. They yeah. mutilated them and sent them off, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. I can think of worse ways for <laughs> Absolutely. things to be handled. Absolutely. <laughs> On the other hand, as far as the island itself, you know, it started off as a prison island. Apparently that's changed. Some of these practices have changed over time. But also, I think it would be a portal, a trading portal to the farther, farther east over time, if not already, because it sits close-ish to, closer to the Bone Mountains. It's not, you know, right there. But you, you can thus see that it would be a place to stop off if trading with someone like Mosavi or Nefer, assuming they even do that because it's closer than than Ib. But that's just a guess. Nefer is a port city. That's it's true. the easternmost port that we know of. That's true. So I, I would guess that they are trading with it, but you know, we just don't know for sure. What do you think? You think they're trading with there? I'm not sure. That's the thing is, I'm, when I think of Nefer, I'm not sure of how much they have left to offer because <laughs> so much has been destroyed. Like, that's true. When I think of Nefer, I think of Nefer, where Nefer lies, if you look at it on the map, it's so to the north is the Shivering Sea, to the east is Mosavi, to the west is Jogos 9, to the south is Yt. They're surrounded. I think of Nefer as being in this like Poland situation. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you're the, Nefer's the Belgium of the world. <laughs> <laughs> the like, Belgian necromancers. <laughs> Let's talk about the port of Ibn itself. As Tim said before, it's got that gray and gloomy feel that's been brought over perhaps from the story, The Doom That Came to Sarnath. And look what the first line is in this quote. Shea. <laughs> gray and gloomy, the port of Ibn has ruled over Ib and the Lesser Isles since the dawn of days. A city of cobbled alleys, steep hills, and teeming docks and shipyards lit by hundreds of whale oil lamps suspended over its streets on iron chains, the port is dominated by the ruins of the God King's Castle, a colossal structure 
of rough-hewn stone that was home to a hundred Ibanese kings. Right there, you get an idea of the way things are set up. The God King's castle is at the port. It's not inland. It's not somewhere else. It's right there in view of the port, which is the key to their wealth and trading with the wider world, which is the key to their wealth. So that tells you a lot about how the society was set up from the beginning. And they still use, this port is obviously still perhaps the most important basic facility in their entire civilization, even though the colossal structure is no longer of the castle is no longer in use. Trade in in Wales, bone and blubber and oil, those three things that come from Wales are, has made them the largest and richest city of the Shivering Sea. I bet those are good lamps. Let me tell you, you do not deal in flammable material without a certain measure of fire discipline. <laughs> you know, like hundreds of oil lamps, man, you got to, just one of them going wrong, all the rest of them go off. But you want to buy Ebony's oil lamps, I think. Yeah. Yandel even made the point that the Ibanese maybe are thought of as oafs or whatever, just because of their physical appearance, they don't talk much. But really, they're actually kind of savvy and, you know, yeah. developed culture or whatever. The idea that some bold, tough, strong sailor hunter goes out and kills a whale, think of the different types of skills and processes that need to be cultivated to make that valuable, mm-hmm. right? How quick do they need to harvest that meat before it spoils? How do you turn that oil into a lamp without setting everything on fire? There have got to be all sorts of tradesmen and craftsmen and such to to make this enterprise worthwhile. Yeah, totally true. Yeah, you're right about that, I think. The Port of Ibn is brought up a number of times. As we alluded to earlier, it it has this end-of-the-world feel similar to Karth or maybe Ashai or some of these just faraway places. Ned actually suggests when she's when he te- when he confronts Cersei and says you need to go, you need to leave. He suggests the port of Ibn. He also suggests the Summer Isles, which is smart because if I were Cersei, I would totally choose the Summer Isles. Like, why would you go to the cold place when you can go to the warm place? But yeah, your mileage may vary. John also considers sending Arya there if she shows up at the wall. He doesn't think of the Summer Isles as possible. Bad bad call, John. You should have thought of that. <laughs> and Danny as we said, saw them right away. Men from the port of Ibn at Illyria's Mance right there in her first chapter. Obviously, Arya sees them quite a bit. She's at the port, at the Ragman's Harbor and in other ports on Bravos. And there, Bravos being relatively close to Ib, there's all sorts of back and forth there. So yeah, Nina, Nina takes this a step further. She says, yeah, it's, they treat it less as a specific place than just the most distant place they can think of. It's like that's it's a concept to them, and they haven't been there, right? They just know of it. Just to someone from Westeros, it's one of the most remote places that you can actually go to. A shy is just too far away, you know. In some ways, it can take like a year to get there, or more, maybe maybe even longer. But and unlike Ashai, which is eh, not a lot, people are just going there all the time. <laughs> there's 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 fewer flights to Ashai. Let's put it that way, right? But Ebb. It, it shouldn't be that hard to find a ship to Ib because they're just ever like we said, they're just ships to Ib are popping up all over the place. And they're probably most of them are going back there at some point because it's not like there's other Ibanese ports around the world for them to go home to. Going to Ib wouldn't be that much of a challenge, but randomly passing by Ib is not a like. Yes. Yeah. You go to right. Ib and then you go away. You don't go like beyond Ib and then past it. That doesn't, there's not a lot of that. Yeah. Ib is, it is the last stop for most, most of the time. Tim, what do you think about this? 
It seems to like have this uh, feel of remote enough that nobody's going to go there asking questions, yeah. but accessible enough that they can always return, that you can come get them when things, like in the case of sending Arya there, it's like, okay, when things die down, well, we can at least, we can get her back. You're, you can't really, that's not a guarantee if you're trying to send somebody as far away from as a shop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, especially because you're like, you can't count on the ships as much either. You're like, well, this is an Ibanese whaler. She's going on like, that's a more dependable ship. Yeah, there's a lot more that, yeah. There's a lot about this that makes makes sense, yeah. And it makes me think of like, like okay, like when Davos arrives at the Three Sisters, he's transported there by an Ibanese, well, a half Ibanese sailor that's Casa Mogat. So it seems like the Ibanese also have more of a, at least a bit of a duty and honor to them that you you can negotiate with them and that their chances are they're going to keep their word. Yeah. And that they'll, they'll take you where you need to go and they'll make sure you get there safely. Maybe that stubbornness is part of it. If you have someone who's stubborn and they're stubborn, apparently as racially, that's apparently a thing. Culturally, they're considered stubborn. If you're stubborn and you're a good person, well, you're going to be pretty stubborn sticking to your your morals. You know, I think that sometimes stubbornness is, is a good thing. It's like one of those things that's neutral. Stubborn by itself isn't necessarily bad or good. It depends on what you're stubborn about. Like efficiency. Like efficiency sounds good, but what if, if you're efficient at killing children? That's not good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> well, well, if we think of like the Ibanez-Skagos relations, it's, it's like that northern stubbornness, like the sticking mm. to your word type stubbornness. Like I'm going to see this. I'm, I, made, I made a promise, so I'm going to see it through come hell or high water. Yeah, when sincerity so, counts sometimes. for more in, in some of these cultures, yeah. Sometimes stubborn might be associated with closed-minded or, or, I don't know, maybe even selfish. But sometimes it's associated with honor yeah. or determination. Yeah, or like whatever. I'm closed-minded about breaking my word. Like I'm not open to yeah. that. <laughs> you know, and that's okay. Well, that's, that could be a very good thing. Something very dependable. So in, in addition to like the sea snake and these other conversations about people maybe gone there, sea snake definitely went. Mushroom went there. The <laughs> from Dance of Dragons fame. He, he, there's a, a passage in Fire and Blood talks about all these other places he's been, like Bravos, and he's like, but it's beyond the scope of us to talk about this, even though it would be fun to. We're like, yes, George, write that one day, it's, The Adventures of Mushroom. No, he's got too much on George his George does that, that so much, does. where, like with Mushroom, where he says, we must turn away from the little man for now. It's like, no, no, no we, I want to hear more <laughs> about the testimony of Mushroom. We Give must that not story. turn away from... <laughs> Here's our next quote, Sean. On Ib itself, men of other lands and races are restricted by law and custom to the harbor precincts of the port of Ibn and forbidden to venture beyond the city, save in the company of an Ibanese host. Such invitations are exceedingly rare. So you wonder why. I mean, maybe it's just this stubbornness. They just don't want people messing around with their stuff. Just, you know, just easier to keep it all under control if there's no one there. Maybe they care about the environment. Maybe they have some customs, religion stuff they want to keep a secret. Mineral wealth they want to keep under wraps. Like there is gold for sure on Ib. Maybe they want to keep that secret. It could be all of the above. We we are talking about how they want to keep their world, their ocean maps safe. You know, they got some trade secrets. Maybe they want to keep their this spills over into their land maps. They also want to keep that under wraps. So I wonder, like, if y'all in the chat, in the comments have other things they might want to keep secret, if it's just spitballing, just any kind of consideration, hit us with it. And Nina suggested maybe it's that whole Giants thing. If they're going to keep Giants, the existence of Giants a secret, well, that would be one thing. It's probably not just that, though. I doubt that this whole thing is just to keep Giants a secret. But that, would be, that could be part of it. I could see that. Do Tim or Sean, either of you guys, have any other ideas, just possibilities, things that popped in your head, things they might keep secret? Looks like Sean, looks like you're ready to go. I, I had a couple thoughts. Okay. One was 
the Lorathi seemed similar, oh, right? They yeah. they At built these mazes to kind of maze makers. Ones, yeah. yeah, yeah, seemed to be attempting to limit travel and and words. Uh, another thought is that and and this you know maybe isn't quite as you know exciting or fantastic, but it it's not new. Environmentalism isn't even new, no, right, you're to, right. To, to modern times. Like Ben Franklin was determined to come up with a more efficient stove because he saw forests being leveled, you know? Yeah. And it's been a constant problem of, of as, as big cities have arrived, Paris was just gross with pollution. You know, I can imagine this port, they can just see what the effects of a bunch of people being around <laughs> has on the environment. Yeah, like, we don't want yeah. that to happen to our, our forests and our homes. So That's everyone just, this place is already a mess. Fine. But don't spread it any further. Yeah, they don't want like other operations setting up like logging operations or other. Yeah, just nope, none of that. Just all the human waste that yeah. would come and yeah. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I think it's it can be a lot a lot of that. Like again, like if if it looks just looks across the shivering sea to its neighbors and you see these slaver cultures, these sli- these dominations, the way that other and with it being so different because the question's still up in the air as to whether they're entirely whether there's just another race or another species but you see how humans just treat other humans mm. and again this yeah. question of like, yeah. what if neanderthals had lived well how would they have been treated by regular homo sapiens it's like can there's it probably would have been i i think uh their extinction was probably inevitable because of how otherwise they would be for, by other humans. And I think yeah. Ib sees that. It's it's a pessimistic way of looking at things. But when this is the thing that you're surrounded by, it's the thing you see on a daily basis, it makes sense like why they would want to close themselves off. Just no, don't even let them get that foothold. Just don't even let it start. Yeah. Hmm. And then if we're thinking too, like Ib as an island, let's like, well, let's, another real world example would be like Japan during the shogunate period how japan isolated itself from the world you might want to just look and be like well look at these look at them they're barbarians like they have nothing of value that we need why should we allow them to be in here there's nothing they can offer us and we want to just keep keep ourselves in keep everything within close those borders hmm. yeah makes i can you can see that yeah it makes some sense we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aaron R. from our Facebook group said, isn't the Bale the Bard story a reference to Rob and Lord Karstark? I have wondered about that too. The, the problem is, yeah, certainly when he's about to be executed, Karstark says, you know, then kill me and be cursed then. You know, we're kin. He's like, I don't know that I believe they're kin. Like Karstark says that. I mean, as far as we know, there hasn't been a Karstark-Stark marriage in like a, like a thousand years or something like that. So are they really, does that really count as kinslang? Maybe it does. Maybe it does, but I, I, I'm i skeptical. It's possible that's what's being referenced, but I, I'm 
I wanted to throw that out there because I'm like, eh, it gets us part of the way, but I don't know. It's close. Certainly, the Bale of the Bard story fits in a lot of places and is a great story. So we don't have to solve it all right here, but I thought Aaron R's comment was worth throwing out there. Sean, you had a couple of comments here, looks like from some past episodes that you wanted to ref- reference real quick. From the chat last week, we were talking about in the, the Red Kings episode about how Roos wanted to kill Barristan. Yeah. Wanted to execute him. And, and, and uh, I think I think it was, was it Ned telling the story of how Roos wanted, he was talking to Renly he, yes. and how Roos wanted to kill Barristan, but, but Robert was like, no. And uh, so it, it, we had different takes on it. I did, and some other people in the chat did too. Gerald G was pointing out that it, Roos wanted to execute Barristan, not necessarily all prisoners. That Barristan maybe was a special example. So someone maybe for the sake of example should be executed, which I don't know if I necessarily agree or like that. It's a good point. I think Robert wanted to spare Barristan as an example. You know, Robert probably did kill a lot of other people. Yeah. Robert <laughs> wanted to spare as many people as possible. That was, yeah, that was his thing. Yeah. yeah. To, to bring them over. Uh, and I was also pointing out there was what seemed to be, I don't know, a discrepancy or hypocrisy in Ned. Cause at one point he says, in talking about that moment with Barristan, he's, you know, he says there's that mercy is never uh, <laughs> a mistake, a mistake. Yeah. but then he chops off Jared's head from the wall. Yeah, yeah. Like, where, there, so, and she pointed out that it isn't necessarily hypocrisy. He might've changed his mind. He might see things differently. Okay. Yours yeah. in a leadership position might have a new perspective. That's so sad to me that he would learn over time mm-hmm. that sometimes mercy is a mistake. You know? <laughs> Even though I kind yeah, of agree sad, that yeah. it might be, but it is still a dark thought. Yeah. And then uh, finally, Guilty Undertaker pointed out that Barrison's highborn, and it maybe he gets a certain mm, exception. Yeah, even someone like written. Ned might not realize yeah. his own prejudice for other highborn yeah. folk. Yeah, yeah, even Ned's not immune to that for sure. So that's that's that probably that that could very much be in the back of his head. So another point, some of y'all wrote in. Several of y'all wrote in to correct me on a point of Zoroastrianism. There is fire worship in Zoroastrianism, and I, and several of y'all pointed out some examples. And I was thinking to myself, how the heck did I miss this? So I had to go back and look it up. And there's actually a very simple reason. First of all, the they have things called fire temples, which I'm like, really? How did I miss that they have fire temples? It's called an agiary. It's a spiritual medium to them. Fire is revered like clean water as an agent of purity. Holy white ash. A lot of these fire temples that generate holy white ash, you bring in sandalwood. A priest burns it for you. They give you the ash. It's like purified ash. You take it home. You do stuff with it, like different rituals. Where I appeared to go wrong is that the fire worship wasn't initially part of Zoroaster. It, it, it was a reform element. It was, a, it was around for as long as 2,000 years, potentially, before the fire worship started. Quote, no actual ruins of a fire temple have been identified from before the Parthian period, which is the 4th century BC. And Zoroastrian may have started as far back as 2600 BC. So fire altars began to replace what were icons and effigies. And then eventually, and long after that, they all became mosques <laughs> because then Islam came along. So... Yeah. So that, anyway, that was that explains the confusion. I was studying for my references just early Zoroastrianism and didn't realize that so the fire stuff came along later. So that that connects a nice dot. And I definitely encourage y'all to point out my mistakes. I would much rather get it right than <laughs> just be seen as, you know, than just to pretend I was right in the first place. And that way y'all know, that way you can trust us to to make fix our mistakes when we make them. Also Karen Targaryen pointed out that Freddie Mercury was raised Zoroastrianism which is really cool. <laughs> I'm like, really? That's awesome. I'm a fan of Queen. So is, uh, so is Ashea. So over a lot of y'all, I'm sure. Let's talk about the Ibanese people. Here's a nice lengthy quote to get us started. Ashea. 
The Ibanese stand apart from the other races of mankind. They are a heavy people, broad about the chest and shoulders, but seldom standing more than five and a half feet in height, with thick, short legs and long arms. Though short and squat, they are ferociously strong. At wrestling, their favorite sport, no man of the Seven Kingdoms can hope to equal them. Their faces, characterized by sloping brows with heavy ridges, small sunken eyes, great square teeth, and massive jaws, seem brutish and ugly to Westerosi eyes, an impression heightened by their guttural, grunting tongue. But in truth, the men of Ib are a cunning folk. Skilled craftsmen, able hunters and trackers, and doughty warriors. They are the most hirsute people in the known world. Though their flesh is pale, with dark blue veins beneath the skin, their hair is dark and wiry. Ibanese men are heavily bearded. Wiry body hair covers their arms, legs, chests, and backs. Coarse dark hair is common amongst their women, even on the upper lip. So most Fridays, I do a Crusader Kings 2 stream with the Game of Thrones mod. It's a very thorough conversion of real world into Westeros. And there are Ebenese people. There's all the races are represented. And the typical way you see that is just a regular portrait of someone else. Like it would be a Westerosi person, but they just put a mustache on, you know, a woman. This is like, you're just like princessy looking character. And it's just like a mustache. You know? <laughs> it's <just> like, <laughs> that's that. Now she's Ebenese. <laughs> that's all it takes. <laughs> I do wonder when I read that description about like Ebenese definition and ideals of beauty. Yeah. What do they think? You know, are like, they like, oh, mustache. she's got the smallest eyes, man. <laughs> like they're so small. <laughs> oh, I that sounds, that sounds so hot. The teeth are so square. <laughs> They're perfectly square. That's a mustache you could really twirl around yeah. your finger. I want to ride that mustache. Yeah. <laughs> mustache rides are very popular in Ib. <laughs> but no, you've had some so you had some failures with your Ibanese lover oh, in, yeah. in Crusader Kings. They do have that built into the game the to where the sterility thing, yeah. Yeah. Aziz was like, I'm not going to have another Ibanese wife after this one. Yeah, you would think I'm some sort of Ibanese racist the way I play on the Crusader Kings because they just, you constantly have like stillbirths and hunchbacks and, and all sorts of genetic diseases and malformities. And it's like, yeah, no, don't, <laughs> we're not doing that again. But yeah, we tried it with our YT campaign. We're like, maybe we should try some Ibanese. Like, nope, it was a bad idea. Just, <laughs> it was just heartbreak. Lots of dead children. It was, it's, it was terrible. I've seen the like Clash of Kings videos people have done of like trying to create the most inbred dynasty ever. <laughs> and that's like a thing too. It's like, uh, you know, we never we never got to see a Targaryen with a Habsburg's jaw. Just, <laughs> yeah, George never went there. Maybe he should have. <laughs> he just put it all in mental health. Yeah. He never had them get ugly or that's the Targaryen exceptionalism at work right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> Who programs that Crusader Kings mod? That's very thorough. That's it's like super a big, thorough. It's, it's, a, it's a big team it's that does it. Thorough. Um, okay, yeah, it makes like, sense yeah for you, you could work on it if you wanted to. You could sign up, and you know, like it's yeah. it's like that open to where you you could join. Okay. They're they're currently working on Crusader Kings three for the mod for that, and it's taking them a long time because it's a very complex thing to do. Like you click on a character's uh, portrait, and you like say click on Ned Stark, and you can go, you can follow his family tree all the way back. Even like though in canon, you cannot example. follow that family <laughs> they, they have back. to make up 
yeah. places to fill in the gaps where they don't have mm-hmm. the information. But yeah, it's it is incredibly thorough. Yeah, it's no, like I'm, a role I'm playing frequent- game with dynasties and every little aspect of of George R. R. Martin's world that you can imagine. Yeah, I'm frequently very impressed by that team. I think for being you know very thorough and for the the stretches, the leaps that they make in canon because they have to, they have to fill in the gaps. They work a lot of the time. Like I, I'm, I'm rarely like, really, you did that. I'm usually yeah. like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like that's a, that's a that makes sense as a Stark name, or that makes sense as that you know, like it, it it checks out to me. Yeah, you give Littlefinger thirty intrigue, and you know, yeah. like a really high score for that. Or Vars, same thing. Like, yeah, that you made George sense. R. Martin a, a genius in the game. Of <laughs> right. George Martin. Uh, <laughs> So let's talk about, let's, let's, let's ref, bring it back here. Sterility claims, as we mentioned earlier, a little contradictory. The maesters say it doesn't work either way, whether with a male or a female uh, partner for an Ebenese. But Brown Ben Plum says his grandmother was half Ebenese, half Kohoric. Castle Mogat, that Tim mentioned earlier, was fathered on a Sisterton sex worker and an Ebenese whaler, according to Davos. Castle was, was being mothered by a woman of Sisterton as well because of the, the Sisterton people have the the mark sometimes, the webbed fingers. So already something else is already maybe other physical traits that indicate this person's a little different. Well, right, I just want to say right off, I think it's interesting that, that Casso Moga is a, presumably the Emonese whaler is a man and the Sisterson sex worker is a woman. So that yeah. would be an example of a successful male Ebenese person with the female, you know, which is the opposite yeah. of what I was saying. I thought, I felt like it would be more likely for the opposite to happen. So yeah, it's pretty... Uh, Pretty Maybe it was a female yeah. Lebanese whaler and a, and a male sisters and sex worker. You don't know. We don't know. So some other possibilities here. Tim, why don't you uh, take over for a sec? What do you think about... Uh, you mentioned Tog Joth already, but what about... Uh, what are some other ones? So this was an idea presented to me by Austin Flowers, who may or may not be in the chat. Hey, Austin. He's <laughs> been on streams with me a while and went for, for a couple streams. And during our Aegon the Third stream, somehow Ib came up and he had brought up the idea of possibly Marwyn the Mage hmm. being someone who has Ibony's blood. Marwyn's description, short, squat, broad in chest with sloping brow huge jaw, uh, bonded, abundant facial hair, large forelimbs. It's all, this all sounds like uh, genuine Ibanese features. And we're also told that he speaks Ibanese and apparently speaks it fluently. He speaks with Ibanese sailors and he also speaks with summer islanders in their own tongues. Yeah. So he's like, a, this is a man who's culture, you know, well, super comfortable sailing too, right? A man who's know, who knows a lot of, a lot of things. And yeah. Marwin already skirts the line of normal Westerosi. So for him to be at least partially, maybe not fully Westerosi might make him more open to the ideas that he has if he has like another cultural outlook on things. Yeah, I'll say straight up, I've always thought that, yeah, Marwin has to be part Ibanese. I think that the description for him, like it's just very clear to me that like, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. I feel like George is channeling where like some of us are part Neanderthal still and look more Neanderthal, you know, like that. that is the the discussion. You can see it in someone's sloping brow. I think George was channeling that specific thing here with a closer connection, but... Yeah, like you're right. Like I think it's some, something like one to four percent of people who have of DNA from uh, above the Sahara have that much Neanderthal blood. Sub-Saharan DNA has a, only like a tiny, mm. tiny percent of Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, and so you know, I, think, I, I, do, but yeah, I think Marwin would have more than than just the tiniest bit of Ibanese, though. I, I, I think so. An um, exception, you say, like Sean? grandmother is. Aboriginal Australians or indigenous Australians mm-hmm. have something like 4% Neanderthal. Oh, okay. Okay, so yeah, so I'm, I was thinking continental. Yeah, because most, most Neanderthal activity was in 
Europe and England. Well, I guess England is before England would have been separated. There would have been Doggerland. It was like it and all that. It was the parallel I was thinking about with Australia. Both both the criminals being sent there. They have a percent. The Aboriginals having a percent of Neanderthal in them. Mm. Not not sure how strong it is or how much Martin was thinking or even aware of that. But yeah. Okay. Anything else to add, Tim? I was just thinking, like, how many people trace their ancestry back to gang have uh, to Genghis Khan? Oh yeah, and that's just coming from one man. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, Neanderthals, even at their peak, were probably only numbered around fifty thousand. But that does give more of a an ability for for that DNA to kind of like to linger on further. If we can, if we have all these people that can just trace themselves back to one particular person, yeah. A population of 50,000 200,000 years ago is a much higher percentage mm-hmm. of the entire population than it would be now. They were so like it's going to play out bigger over time. Yeah, that's for sure. I got to say, I really wish, you know, they have those like Ancestry.com and stuff like that. <laughs> I wish they told me, me for... like how much Neanderthal I was. Oh, yeah. I would yeah. love that. That would be kind of fun to know. Yeah. <laughs> Ari as well, when she's blind, when she's the blind girl, she is able to identify Ebenezer sailors by smell which is interesting. Partly, it's because they're Ibanese sailors, like the whale smells is part of it. I don't know how much of it is them. Like, that smells like an Ibanese, or it's just, that smells like a whaler, and that is probably Ibanese. It's not clear, but I think that, you know, with developing her senses, and she's also, it's implied that while she's blind, she's also using that cat's nose (laughs) a little bit, so, (laughs) as well as that cat's eyes. So she's got cat senses, boosting all of, you know, that her sense of smell is going to be a little more sensitive <laughs> if she's using a cat nose <laughs> instead of just her human nose. That reference to wrestling brings up Bear Island, huh, Tim? Yeah, like, I made me think, if all our disputes could be solved with wrestling, then it would rule the world. <laughs> yeah, that's the system they want to like, uh, bring in. <laughs> if we have this, already this Skagosi uh, connection to to Ib, then that also could mean, and and we know that Skago, there's been Skagosi marriages into the Starks. So maybe the particular Northmen who wrestled mm. the Ironborn for control of Bear Island might have some Ibanese ancestry. Nice. They were like, we we're setting this up in advance. All right, all right. We're going we're gonna to play oh, a wrestling well, match in two generations and prepare for that. We're going to breed some Ibanese blood into our... <laughs> it's a long-term plan. <laughs> I like it. It might be a little trouble. Every now and then you're going to have a, a Gregor the Mountain come along and suddenly <laughs> Yikes. put up a challenge to the Ibanese. That's true. I wouldn't want to wrestle Gregor. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> So overlapping the idea that they don't like outsiders too much for whatever reason that we I think we went through some some positive some cool suggestions for why that is we get even farther with that the rural Ibanese folk are even more distrustful of outsiders even more independent minded perhaps here's a quote the Ibanese of the woods and mountains have even less love of strangers than their cousins by the sea and seldom speak any tongue but their own foresters goatherds and miners they make their homes in caves or houses of gray stone dug into earth and roofed with slate or thatch. Towns and villages are rare. The Ibanese of the interior prefer to dwell apart from their fellows in solitary compounds, gathering only for weddings, burials, and worship. Gold, iron, and tin can be found in abundance in the mountains of Ib, as well as timber, amber, and a hundred sorts of pelts in the island's so again, that sounds a little bit like Iceland with the separate communities and the terrain. 
and it fits with the size as well. And one of the anecdotes just after the scouring of Lorath by the Freehold of Valyria, Ibanez would stop there to refuel or to get some trees or some food, but they wouldn't go inland because it says the Ibanez believe that you, if you go beyond the sound of the sea, you're cursed. You know, it's like, that doesn't really sound right to me because you've got these Ibanez right here that we just described that live inland. So I think that's some sort of misconception. Maybe it's the sailors think that. The sailors are more like, ah, oh, landlubbers. But I think maybe the mistake that Yandel is making here is to ascribe that belief to all Ibanez where it, it may not be accurate at all. But if it is accurate, I would imagine it's just the sailors. It could also be that those interior Ibanez are cursed. <laughs> Hey, you're right. <laughs> I think like the underlying concept of all of this is that people are complicated. And what while so- some things may be common among a culture, they're not going to be the end-all be-all. Like we take the Dothraki, for example. They say the Dothraki have never sailed across an ocean. They'll never cross water. They believe the water, the seawater is poison because horses can't drink from it. But then going back to the bloody members again, they have a Dothraki member, yeah. Solo the Fat. A few the of them, who, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one who cut Jamie's hand off. Well, if the Dothraki don't sail, then how is the Dothraki in Westeros? <laughs> he had to cross an ocean to get there. Littlefinger's teleporter, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so here we earlier we mentioned the connection to the Skagosi. Here's a quote that shines some light on that idea. A huge, hairy, foul-smelling folk some maesters believe this could go see to have a strong admixture of Ibanese blood. Others suggest that they may be descended from giants, clad in skins and furs and untanned hides, and said to ride on unicorns. The Skagosi are the subject of many a dark rumor. So it definitely makes sense that with all their seafaring, that the Ibanese would find Skagos pretty early on. It's not obscured. It's pretty much directly west and a little bit north. It's not like well hidden, you know, maybe it's hard to find an anchor, uh, a harbor there, but the actual island, they would have found that pretty, pretty quickly. Nina suggests maybe the unicorns on Skagos came from Ib or the other way around. They imported them and, and they started to proliferate. But the idea that they are connected, the Ibanese and the Skagosi through bloodlines is, is, is pretty interesting, especially with this mention of giants, because we've already mentioned maybe the Ibanese are connected to giants physiologically. So there could be like a three-way connection point here or a multi, multi-pronged set of bloodlines here. What do you think, Tim? What, is this, what does this Skagosi stuff mean to you? There is so much I could say about Skagos. <laughs> um, Skagos like brings up a lot. Skagos is, is just like this really weird outlier and how many things and how many things proliferate there. I bring up like uh, in the notes I put how the Ibanese language is referred to as a grunting guttural language. Mm. And then that makes me think of like the old tongue, which yeah. is spoken by giants and the free folk, how that's a, a clanging language. So I was thinking like maybe if if we're thinking like language trees and common ancestors, maybe the old tongue is could be derived from like a sort of form of Ibanese language and both of them could go back even further to these to the hairy men that the Ibanese seem to come from because the hairy men we got to remember like the hairy men are different than the like sometimes like these terms go hand in hand and then other times they're used inter, like they're used interchangeably but then the hairy men and other other times are referred to as a completely different race or species of people that are no longer around and that the Ibanese are like the modern day 
version of them, mm. I guess. The, okay. That makes sense. So, but the other thing about Skagos is like Skagos, the Skagosi, when it means stoneborn, and then that makes me think of more of ironborn and how the ironborn oh, yeah. claimed to have come from the sea. <laughs> and it always made me think like the North is in this bad spot because the Skagosi rebel against the North a lot. They, there have been rebellions from True. the Skagosi. So you always got the, uh, the North is constantly dealing with, they got ironborn on one side and Skagos on the other side. It's like two, two thorns in your side that you're constantly dealing with. True. Yeah, that's a good way to frame it. And that is a good segue to talking about some Ibanese history. Due to their isolation, most of what we know about their history comes from interactions with other peoples. They haven't necessarily shared a lot of their own history with the maesters. So we'll start with a quote from ancient times. Here is one quote. Sean, take us away. The men of Ib have not always confined themselves to their islands. There is abundant evidence of Ibanese settlements on the Axe, on the Lorathi Isles, and along the shores of the Bitterweed Bay and the Bay of Tusks in the west, and Leviathan Sound and the Thousand Islands in the east. And history tells of several Ibanese attempts to seize control of the mouth of Sarn, attempts that brought the hairy men into bloody conflict with the Sarnori, sister cities, Sath, and Saris. So this really sparks the imagination. Full-blown war between Ib and the Sarnori. You think of Ibanese as more independent. You think of like the whaling ships and things like that. But picturing an entire Ibanese army, like what does that look like? Like how do they arm themselves for war? I can think of like individual warriors, like Tim mentioned, the the few men, members in the Brave Companions, the Bloody Mummers, and then Tyrion has a couple of Ibanese guardsmen that guard Shay. So we've seen them and how they're armed and things like that. But that is is individual like mercenaries. This is like an army like equipped with like state gear, or something like that, levies, what that looks like. Something that like this hasn't been seen in centuries probably. Also, they would have naval battles. Recall the tale in the Kingdom of Sarnor episode of the place with tens of thousands of dead sailors and countless ships. The Lorathi call it Bloody Bay. The Ibanese call it Battle Bay. Same vibe, basically. They possibly raided up the White Knife in ancient times. The, the uh, Wolf's Den was there, and lots of different, it, it suffered lots of different raids from lots of different places, and the Ibanese may have been among those. The Mouth of the Sarn, as it says, they tried to seize that. It's extremely valuable. I mean, the Sarn is a huge river delta with all sorts of tributaries, and it would control a lot of the trade from Sarnor. So you could see why that would be enormously valuable and why they would fight over it. So there's a lot of stuff here about what they would have been doing. And the idea of thinking of Sarnor versus Ib, I really, it's really really sparks the imagination. What do you, what does this do for you, Tim? How do you picture this? Any ideas? Yeah, it just seems like the, the Ibanese there real strength lays in like naval warfare and try to stick to these coastlines. But the more that they try to go inland, the more they seem to fail. Like Mm. we said, like Ibanese settlements don't seem to last very long and they're always pushed back, whether it's by the Sarnori or the Lorathi or Valerians or what have you. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, yeah, given their naval strength, that makes sense. Maybe a little bit like the Ironborn, maybe not quite as bad as the Ironborn. But in terms of, yeah, if it's not close to the sea, they, may, they, they haven't been able to hold it. That does seem to be like a it's like, Yeah, that's, 
that was what I was going to say later. It's like, it's, it's not a matter of taking it. It's a matter of holding it. And that's, that's where the obstacles seem to come in. The Ibanese might also be a low, like lowish population. They may not have a lot of pure manpower to hold their gains. That might be part of it as well. Cause they do like their space. There are independent minded. So once maybe they get together well for a conquest, the God King is able to bring them together for conquest, but then they start to fritter into their independent kind of natural independent states. And that makes it hard for, holding on to gains. Yeah, I could see that. They did hold that territory in Essos. They, they ended up losing it to the Dothraki, but they had that for centuries. Yeah, they did have it for quite a while. I mean, it seems, it sounds like it, it had ebbs and flows into how much territory it was. Sarnor pushed back, they would get it back, this and that. And then, yeah, and then when the doom comes, that throws it all off. We're, we're, we're going to get to that in just a minute because we don't have a whole lot on ancient times. It seems like that's, that's the big pivot point for what we know about their history. Nina suggests maybe the Sarnari kingdom wasn't worth a whole land-based military operation or maybe because of the ideas we just threw out, they just wouldn't be able to do it. She, she has similar ideas about their strength being in the Navy and anything you can't, you know, maybe that could extend a river power, you know, if, if the rivers are big enough. But other than that, yeah, going too far inland, yeah, it would be really difficult for them to, to keep a long term. Here's our next quote discussing the god kings of Ib and how they were able to do that. And I think one thing to keep in mind as she's reading this quote is just to consider things might have been a lot different under the god kings. It may be that now that we don't have the god kings and some time has passed, this is when they've started to really flex their independence. But when they were ruled by an all-powerful monarch, they may have been forced to do, you know, ruled by this great authority and that may have changed some things. So keep that in mind. The god kings of Ib, before their fall, did succeed in conquering and colonizing a huge swath of northern Essos immediately south of Ib itself, a densely wooded region that had formerly been the home of a small, shy forest folk. Some say that the Ibanese extinguished this gentle race whilst others believe they went into hiding in the deeper woods or fled to other lands. Now, probably like humans, there's probably some who wanted to kill these things, people, these creatures, and just some that wanted to revere them. It may be an exaggeration, though. Maybe the revering was the more common attitude. We do have a take from Brian of Old Town, who was an explorer, who says that he interviewed Ibanez about this. And he, they, they told him that They've never seen one. None of the Ibanese he talked to had ever seen a forest walker in Ivacavron. But they believe good fortune comes to those who leave, quote, offerings of leaf and stone and water overnight. So you'd like leave like a, like for Santa Claus, leaving cookies for Santa Claus, you know, cookies and milk. So they, you leave this outside overnight. And the, or like how I, I think like, it, I think it might even be an like Icelandic, thing. like like Nordic type of thing. The idea to leave it for little elves. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I only say that and I feel so silly for saying this, but it's a big thing in that movie, the Eurovision movie with Will <laughs> really? Ferrell. Uh, they have actual like little elves. Anyways, I, I, I think they're <laughs> referencing a real... Thing tradition. that is done, a tr- real tradition in a silly <laughs> way, but take that with a grain of salt. This is, yeah, it, that's neat. Like the elves will. <laughs> I, I can't believe it didn't more uh, consciously click in my mind until she read this quote just now that it's kind of like the Ib or dwarfs and the small, shy forest folk are elves. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Tim already mentioned the some of the Tolkien dwarf like comparisons, and there's this. Probably yeah, I'm sure there's more. We got a little section coming up on that. But I just, in this quote here, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Isn't that neat? Yeah. 
So we don't really have much idea of their religion either. Like they have God kings. So that's got to be part of it because you're not a God king. That's definitely a religious element to it. They have to, they worship the ruler as a God, something like that. But other than that, we, I mean, that's pretty vague, right? It's just, okay, that's a religious thing, but we don't get any specifics. Nina says that the God Kings were directing the conquest and or extermination of the Woodswalkers, and there are definitely overtones here of the wars in Westeros between the children of the forest and the first men, like the Andals, or and the Andals, rather. So yeah, there could be a back, like the God Kings may have seen the, this belief in the Forest Walkers as a threat to their power and sought to wipe them out, whereas the more rank-and-file everyday folk have this leave offerings thing, and that's their attitude. So yeah, no reason to think of them as a monolith. And this also really says a thing about the difficulty with breeding and the, the possible sterility. It also really maybe suggests why maybe the Ibanese have conquered outward, but why it's part of why they aren't able to make great gains and part of why that no one's been able to conquer them is that a lot of conquest is through bloodlines. Like you marry in, like that's such a common thing. You don't actually extinguish the former rulers. You take a daughter and marry in and then you've got that bloodline. And the Ibanese, that can't work with the Ibanese, but either way, or at least it can't be relied on, I suppose. Right? Or it seems like that would be a reason why their, their population would both not spread as much and also be hard to wipe out through, through this, those, those methods anyway. It's also, I, I think there's a, like, a lot of negative connotation to it, but a lot of times cultures assimilating each yeah. other is a way of making peace, if you will. And it's a little harder to do that when you can't literally marry can't. and have kids Breathe, and families yeah. with each other. So it is a limiting factor for sure. Yeah, I think it's still obviously get along and have drinks together and hang out and trade. But yeah, this is a, a small impediment for sure. Basically, like, like, okay, like you secure an alliance through a marriage pact. Well, first, one, first you got to get over the physical attractiveness, I guess, of the Ibanese. And then probably second, vice like versa think, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or how that, yeah, maybe they think you're the ugly one. Yeah. But then there's also, like we think in our own main story, like how how often do these marriages not work because they didn't lead to uh, a, an heir, yeah. uh, unsuccessful births. Uh, like House Aaron seemed to have like a, a lot of problems with birthing. So, so you already have that idea that having an heir or having children is already not a given. Then you put into this how how unlikely it is. And even if it is, does happen, then there's the statistics of how likely are they to be sterile. Mm -hmm. it's, it just seems like the, the actual half Ibanese, half other uh, race or ethnicity, however, however we want to term it, how many of them are actually going to be able to go on and have children of their own. It just seems to be so few and far in between. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a risk. You're right. For a peace to be made through a marriage, you, it won't last if they're if that family ceases to exist in a generation or two. So then you're back where you started. It's another thing too that we often see or think in terms of the royalty, right? Yeah. The, the, the noble families or whatever. But I think it still holds true, like down to common peasants. If there's, if, yeah. if, if there's some sort of rivalry or racism or whatever it is between the Ibanese and the humans, or you know whatever race or branch of humans, just like in the real world, I think that once you have a couple gener like racism doesn't just magically evaporate, but it definitely gets smaller when you have, you know, like, you know, in the real world, like I have real life examples from my, my branches of my family, you go back a generation that were, you know, had these racist elements, but then the kids are 
gay or marry a black family or whatever else. And all of a sudden, the grandparents have this new baby in their arms. And some of that racism gets a little diminished for this this new Yeah, in some cases, unfortunately, it gets worse. You know? But you're right. But it's more likely True, to get yeah. better in a situation like that. Yeah. You're right. And, but if you can't get that situation with the Ebenezer, then yeah. maybe it limits it's, the ability yeah. to progress, assimilate, whatever word you it's want. It's a to method use. of bonding that is that maybe isn't open to them, which is a yeah, that's a big impediment. So yeah, so that that explains a lot about why they are remain kind of a, a people apart, as it says at the beginning in that opening quote. The Ebenezer are are different that way. So let's let's move forward to the fall of the God Kings, which came around the same time as the Doom, and when the Doom comes. It just this big upheaval, as Tim said. It affected the entire globe. We've discussed it in a number of different angles because it's pretty much every nation was affected and there was differences in how they were impacted based on how close they were to Valyria, how tied they were to Valyria, lots of other factors. So let's have this next quote. At its greatest extent, the Ebenezer foothold on Essos was as large as it itself and far richer. More and more of the hairy men crossed over from the islands to make their fortunes there cutting down the trees to put the land under the plow, damming the rivers and streams, mining the hills. Ruling over these domains was Ibish, a fishing village that swelled to become a thriving port and the second city of the Ebenezer. With a deep harbor and high white walls, all that ended 200 years ago with the coming of the Dothraki. Right, so it says 200 years ago, so that's farther out than the doom by a good bit. So the, obviously the Dothraki, when they emerged, the first thing they did was start beating down the Sarnori because they were the closest ones. And then they just kept going. The, the cities of the Quathai were in their path as well. And eventually the Ibanese. So you wonder whether for a time the Ibanese were picking on the Sarnori because they were getting weakened by the Dothraki. They're like, ooh, our, our traditional sometimes enemies are taking, it, taking a hammering. So maybe we can take some of that from them. And then, of course, that maybe that was a lack of foresight as the buffer state of Sarnor was no longer there and the Dothraki started focusing on their new foe in front of them, which was the Ibanese. Uh, the Ibanese being more stubborn, they weren't willing to pay the Dothraki off like a lot of other nations were. And that proceeded to turn to war. Lots of fighting. And mixed emotions, to be sure, when the Sarnori were getting beaten up, they are probably like, all right, maybe that's good. But then when they... The Dothraki came for them. They're like, okay, this is bad. One, Kal Anko, they destroyed the Kalasar of Kal Anko. But that was, this is a real damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because if you're weak, the Dothraki will come for you. If you fight back, the Dothraki will come for you. <laughs> so, because they're like, ooh, a good fight. You know, and they're like, ooh, a weak person. They just, either way, they're, they're going to want to fight you. So the god, the Dothraki do what they do. They carried off the gods of Ibish to base Dothrak. Again, we have no idea what those gods are. I would love to have some idea. And they rebuilt. This is like the the castle in the swamp from Monty Python. <laughs> just, but the third one, no, that one was destroyed by the Dothraki as well. <laughs> they rebuilt. It was destroyed a generation later. They rebuilt and then, quote, in the north, Kaldako sacked and burned Ibish, reclaiming most of the small foothold the men of Ib had carved out in the northern coast of Essos. A much smaller Ibanese colony survives in the dense forest beside the Shivering Sea, huddled around the town they have named New Ibish. Sounds like there should be a Three Little Pigs fairy tale about this. 
Three big <laughs> little ib, little ib. <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> I've got lots of hair on my chinny chin chin and on my upper lip <laughs> and everywhere else too. <laughs> oh boy, this one writes itself. Yeah, we gotta see a children's book. So Kaldako actually burned an empty city. It's not necessarily clear from this that they they just the third time they're just like, no, we're not gonna, we're just leaving. They just took got in their ships and, and took off. And the Dothraki called them cowards for that. It's like the same people that stood up to you several times <laughs> you call it like, yeah, you just can't, there's no, you're damned if you, again, damned if you do, damned if you don't here. And the Dothraki at first, that was, uh, it was, it was protected from the Dothraki at first because the Dothraki don't like to go in deep forests. And apparently they have a reference, a reverence for these woods walkers also. So maybe the Dothraki didn't want to go into their territory to get to the Ibish because that would mean tramp, traipsing through the territory of the Woodswalkers. That's kind of speculation, but it's compelling speculation. Do you have a, a thought on the Woodswalkers element to this, Tim? Or is it a little too hard to pinpoint? No, no, because I think, like, we've seen how the Dothraki seem to be, like, even though they don't sail in the same vein as sailors, they seem to have, like, this more superstitious beliefs like yeah. the way how Miri Mazdor is called is called a witch over and over and with I mean she kind of really was a witch <laughs> <laughs> just, just because just because you're uh just because it's mean doesn't mean it's wrong yeah. <laughs> but, uh, really with with the Ibanese I can actually see the Dothraki being even more brutal with the Ibanese because it's like they're not a tr- mm. like we know we know what the Dothraki do tend to do. Yeah. And these are an unattractive people and they don't make good slaves. And if we think of like, again, like Dothraki trying to lead Ibish down to the slavers, down to like Slaver's Bay. If if the Ibanese are as stubborn as they are, then I can see the Ibanese being the ones to also put up a fight along the way. Mm-hmm. Like if there's ever a Spartacus situation along the way from the Dothraki Sea nice. to Karth, it's probably an Ibanese dude leading the up, leading it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I could see it, like a Dothraki being like, yeah, just kill the Ibanese. Let's not even bring him. He's just going like, to cause it's, trouble it's not on, the, on the route yeah. or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, which is an interesting perspective. It like makes it's just like this spread. Like if all the people are pro- kind of protecting each other by like if I stand up now, it protects later of my brethren that that will be you know may, may make some Dothraki think twice later. This is maybe stretching, maybe a Tim Foyley range, especially because I don't know how it can matter. But I wonder if. Again, if we account for the fact that the Ebenezer aren't necessarily a monolith and that over time people and cultures and conflicts can grow and change and whatever, I wonder if some of the woodswalkers that they conquered or destroyed or whatever, maybe they brought some back with them mm. to Ib. And they live in the interior, and that's part of why they don't want anyone in there. Maybe they rescued some of those people, huh. and they're still surviving there. Or they were just there in the first place. You know, like like oh, Tim said, if it, was a, if it was a Pangea situation, it may have just been part of... Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, can't, can't dismiss that one out of hand. All right, let's talk about current times. What Ib looks like in these days, and by current, I mean the last few hundred years. It's not necessarily right now, but with an emphasis on more current than a few hundred years ago. So a little range of operation here. Here's the quote from Shea. Today, Ib and the Lesser Isles are governed by the Shadow Council, whose members are chosen by the Thousand, an assembly of wealthy guildsmen 
ancient nobles, priests, and priestesses, not unlike the magister's councils of the free cities. So they're going, they're following a relatively familiar path for real world society. We're not talking about Laura. (laughs) 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 Which is that monarchy often is replaced by oligarchy. That's a fairly common thing in the real world. And so makes sense here. The shadow council are most certainly the people that a lot of them, it says ancient nobles, priests, and priestesses, like the magister's guilds, but a lot, a lot of them are probably the people that are sitting at the top of these trade network empires or whatever you want to call them. The guys profiting the most from these large global trade networks are very likely to be at the top of this. I just can't help but think about how if that's accurate when they call it the thousand, it speaks to the population size of Ib a lot. That's true. Yeah, I wonder the fa- yeah, I wonder what that means. Like, is is, it, is it, it literally a thousand, a thousand people or, or is that just a you know, yeah. A code name. <laughs> and you know, if it's is it the thousand, but really like forty percent of the population is part of the thousand, you know, or is <laughs> yeah. it like one percent is I don't know. What There's really only three thousand. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the top third. I mean, it's a big jump from like Karth's oligarchy, which is what, like the Council of 13? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. It doesn't say how many people are on the Shadow Council. The the thousand choose the Shadow Council, but we don't know how many people are on it. So maybe that's also like 10 or 12 or 13, but still. Yeah, yeah. It's like a sub, there's like a group. There's, there's basically their version of democracy is a thousand people. It's, it's a very early, yeah. you could say that it's, eventually it might be 10,000 people voting, which would be closer to democracy. We discussed this in the, the Greek, we brought up Greece and how a lot of times 30,000 people were, were voters, but then 10,000 people were voters. It was basically like the, what, who had more power, the oligarchs, the Democrats, and the number would be pushed out. Like certain groups would be included or not included based on who was in power at the time. Might be similar in Ib, who is part of the thousand, meaning like who's allowed into that. There may be restrictions and some people would want to keep others out to, to keep more power for themselves. But that general quote continues to describe what is going on outside of the islands. So let's continue. Ib retains a modest foothold on Essos even to this day, on a small peninsula surrounded by the sea and defended by a wooden wall almost as long as the ice wall of the Night's Watch, if not a third as high, a towering earth and timber palisade bristling with defensive towers and protected by a deep ditch. Behind the earthworks, the men of Ib have built the town of New Ibish to rule over their much-diminished domains. But sailors say that the new town is a sad and squalid place, more akin to Ibsar than to the thriving city that the horse lords reduced to ruins. I stumbled for a second there because I read that I thought I said Ibsad. Like Ibsad. Ibsad. <laughs> so maybe you'll have to rename it Ibsad if it doesn't, <laughs> things get worse there. That's a pretty casual mention for a wall that huge, isn't I it? I know. I was like, yeah, that's still <laughs> like, very large. Yeah, that's a huge wall. And it's protecting a sad and squalid place. That's that's really a, a big disparity there. For such a huge too. wall for such a tiny little. I mean, like, that, like that's tall, but the like ice wall is a very, it's a very long wall yeah. to, to be that long. It also and this is it. earth and timber. It's not, I, I mean, yeah, almost arguably that might be harder. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know much about building huge walls, but more, you know, like trees need to be cut heart. down. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Assuming that there was some magic involved in the, the ice wall in the north, then it probably was harder if they actually had to physically go do it without the help of magic. That's true. That's true. 
But the other implication here is that New Ibish could return to a state. Like, it got that big before. It just got had a humongous setback being burned several times in the last few hundred years. It could maybe get big again. What do you think, Tim? You think there's a chance it recovers? Let me throw a scenario at you before you answer. Let's say Daenerys brings a huge number of Dothraki with her to Westeros. An amount, like if she brings like 100,000 Dothraki, that's how big Drogo's Kalsar was. Maybe, maybe that's not enough, but maybe she brings like even more than that. Big power vacuum. A big, exactly. A power, so many Dothraki fighting men leave the region that it might open up the Ibanese a chance to re-expand again. That's maybe something that could be just two sentences in the aftermath of everything near the end of the last book where there's just like different things are being described. It's happening around the world. It's something that I kind of, when I was thinking about this, kind of latched onto this as an idea. What do you think about this, Tim? Is this kind of, is that too many, is that, is that a little too far-fetched or just in general, what are your thoughts on all this new ambition and this stuff? Well, it makes me think like, I think a good indicator of that would be of how that would go. We might see when Danny returns from the call because Barristan is leading the people he's leading, there's Lazarine, uh, like there's the, oh, yeah. the Red Sheep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is going to have to do with how well are the Dothraki going to play with others? Because right there, you already have a his, people who have historically been decimated by the Dothraki. The Lazarine are constantly hit by the Dothraki. But now you have Lazarine members of that are being trained by Barristan, by Sir Barristan, that are now go- like, how are they going to respond to fighting alongside Dothraki? Mm-hmm. It's again like these Tolkien things, like uh, a dwarf fighting with an elf. I never thought I'd see the. <laughs> and the same situation could be with Ib. It's like if if Dothraki show up at New Ibish, and it, it's it's an idea of well, how much does is our history, the bad blood between us and our history, going to factor in into this new alliance? Alliances can be can make or break depending on ha- on histories between between the two groups. Like I again, I brought up the talking about how how often Brit the British fought the French only to become allies, but that's also not the case. Some enemies just stay enemies. It's really <laughs> yeah. It's a good question. Like I I can't really. I think it can like it can go either way. I think a lot of that actually is, is more on how the Dothraki respond though. That's a good point. Well yeah. The it's not like the one thing is introduced. It's not like the Dothraki have like a bunch of cities that would need to be overrun, right? That would normally that's the thing when you're trying to take territory away from another people. You, they have settlements that you have to deal with, but the Dothraki they don't have that. They just have these roaming armies that might just not be there anymore if they go with Danny and like, hey, this is wide open grassland now. They could build some towns and maybe hold them. Although that's that's traditionally been very difficult against the Dothraki, but maybe we're entering a new era of the Dothraki will be, I don't know, just different. The outlook is different. Maybe a lot of them will stay in Westeros. Like, will they go, if Danny brings a lot of Dothraki over to Westeros to fight the others and White Walkers and all that, whether or not she lives through all this, certainly they're not all going to die, I wouldn't think. So are they going to stay? Or are they going to want to go back to the Dothraki Sea? Like, interesting open question. Not, not necessarily a question for today, but something to think about when it's all over said and done with are people just going to go home <laughs> for people like the dothraki that's an interesting question for someone for the stormlanders that's like yeah well their home is just right there that's not a not a big deal but for the people who came across the sea yeah what's going to happen speaking of being wiped out and rising again 
Time to circle back to the doom that came to Sarnath. The Ibanis in that story were wiped out and then rose up again out of the sea, like literally out of the sea or the lake, <laughs> to wipe out the Sarnori or the, Sar- the people of Sarnath. And Tim, was there anything more you wanted to add to that in terms of how it references this? Or if you want to say more about, this is our last shot at discussing influences. So say what you want to say. I'd love to hear it. Uh, okay, so one thing I want to bring up, when we're talking the Sarnori and the Dothraki, there are examples of how certain Sarnori kings actually worked with the Dothraki against other Sarnori. True. Uh, sometimes they use them as like as mercenaries to settle old grudges. And it's this idea of, okay, well, they're not going to come... Like, they're not going to do this. They did that to other Sarnori, to my rival, but they're not going to do the same to me, <laughs> only for that to then bite them in the ass later on. <laughs> Repeatedly. <yeah. laughs> and what's interesting here is because is what remains of the Sarnori, what remains of the tall men, despite historically being at odds with George's Ibanese, they are now protected. Like, the, the, the 20,000 or so tall men that still exist in That's the remnants true. of Sarnor are protected through support from Ib and Lorath. That's true. So it's kind of like, so it's kind of like this idea of the people that were once your enemies are now the one thing that's now propping you. Yeah, they're your lifeline. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's true. Things really do change, don't they? That's a great point. I had a few notes on Neanderthals just to maybe make a few comparisons. They're a bit similar physically in some ways. They were evolved for cold weather. That's a similarity. A thicker neck bones, shorter but thicker, bigger, stronger jaws. That's also a similarity. Ibanese have smaller eyes. Neanderthals had larger eyes than humans because of they need you need to collect more light when you live in certain places. Ibanese are pale and hairy. Neanderthals were probably not pale. They were probably darker skinned, but they were hairy. So the range of Neanderthals was Europe and the Mediterranean, not Iceland. Ha. <laughs> Sparser groups than humans. They lived in smaller uh, communities. Supposedly went extinct about 40,000 years ago. It's, it's debated why, but it's surely not just one factor. It had to be a lot of things. And so, yeah, so like Tim said at the beginning, this is George's version of if they didn't go extinct, but were able to carve out their own niche in the greater world and hold on to that and partly thrive. Like this isn't, they're not on the brink here. They're not big. They're not every, they're, but they are all over the place and they're, no, they're nowhere near going extinct. So they're a minority, but they're not underneath threat. And we don't really hear of like, genocide against the Ibanese. The closest thing I can hear about that is the winter fever was brought to Westeros and some Ibanese got blamed for it and they just, all the Ibanese in the town were blamed and killed for it. But that's, that's wrong. It's evil, but it's not like, it's not the same as just trying to wipe out all Ibanese everywhere, right? That's, that's like a more localized paranoia and and panic. Mm. So, and I hear, we have no examples of anyone trying to conquer Ib itself. Unless those dragons were maybe an example of that. But if that was a thing, it was in the far gone past. Do you think, do you think there's ever been attempts to conquer the island of Ib? Does that sound... It's difficult to like conquering the Iron Islands, right? Who wants it? Yeah, who wants it? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it might be one of those situations where like there's a lot of other really good, val- tasty, valuable places to go after. Like that's like, that's like the bottom five places you'd want to go. <laughs> Uh, that's just my perspective uh, on it. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe there, maybe there is some great value because, like, if you come kill the whales and get whale blubber, you know, like, and there's gold there. Know, apparently, like, there's some stuff there. But I still could see it being like, why? But it is full of Ibanese. You uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're not going far away. away. Yeah, it is far away. It's cold. That's, that's the one thing. Yeah, cold. Yeah, it's a cold area. They're hard. There's they're like hardy, gouty warriors, as yeah. they say. Like, right. they're not easy to take out. 
Yeah. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be, wouldn't like, be easy. Like if you think of like the disputed lands, that's supposed to be more of a barren wasteland at this point, yet it's constantly fought over. It's true. So it seems like it, What's interesting, it seems like it, with, with the gold and the mines and everything it has to offer should be a lot more valuable. But there's just all these other reasons like, why. It just has to be it's just like out of the <laughs> way. Because we have examples yeah. of people fighting over so much less. The disputed lands of the three, the three sisters have been back and forth between the Vale and the North, yet it's like they really don't have much to offer. Yeah. So why keep them? And an invasion fleet would have to deal with their Navy if they knew it was coming, and that yeah. would be a whole yeah, thing. I, mean, it's just a, I think it's, get, you know, just like you don't have to cross Ebb to get to anywhere important. Yeah, that's it's true, not, too. Yeah, it's not a like a trade route, route really, yeah. for anyone but the, if the Ebenese. And if, they, and, if they're, and if that's not true, that would be why the Ebenese keep that a secret. Like, yeah. if they, they, they don't want people to think, oh, wow, if we knew, if they knew all their secrets, they would, people would be more interested in conquering them. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about trade and seafaring. It's one of it's our last full section before our little outro. It starts off with another quote. Old fishermen, they travel the northern seas widely in search of cod, herring, whitefish, and eel. But it is as whalers that they are best known in the wider world. Their great-bellied whaling ships are common sights in ports up and down the narrow sea and beyond. Though seldom pleasing to the eye or nose, Ebenese ships are renowned for their strength, for they are built to weather any storm and withstand the assaults of even the largest leviathans. This separates them from most of the comparisons we've made. This seafaring thing is a huge aspect of their culture that makes them really different than like dwarves or Neanderthals. Neanderthals did seafare in the Mediterranean, but like they weren't ocean going. They weren't like this. They weren't all a global trade network and sailing places that other people don't even know exist. Dwarfs, as far as I know, in Tolkien didn't sail like at all. <laughs> and so these are world-class sailors. That's, that really separates them from all these other comparisons. Certainly, the, even the Ebenezer of Lovecraft weren't, weren't sailors. They were a lake. Well, they, weren't, they were very much non-human, so that's a completely different thing. They could swim. As I said before, the Shadow Council, probably the biggest beneficiaries of this giant trade network, or at least the most powerful members of the thousand that vote them in, they surely are trading with nearby places like Bravos, Lorath, and Omber. In fact, the first place that Bravos traded with was the Ibanese, probably because they thought, well, the Ibanese know how to keep a secret. Because <laughs> the first Bravos didn't want anyone to know where they were because they didn't want Valyria to find out where they were because, of course, they were escaped slaves from Valyria. And some of those original escaped slaves were Ibanese. It may have been the Ibanese element among the slaves that suggested, hey, why not trade with our people? They're not going to tell that's a good way to get started, to build up a little you know, trade, gain some wealth, make the city more stronger, and make it more able to announce to the world that it exists and, and work with that. And you wonder too, Nina asks the question, maybe the Bravosi learned a lot about sailing from the Ibanese, borrowed it and like followed in their footsteps or in their wake, as it were. That makes a lot of sense because the Bravosi are relatively new as a culture. I just want to bring this... I see what you did there. Yeah. In there, I want to bring up a, a little thing, kind of thing that went on in the chat where they were talking about Neanderthals yeah. and the idea that Neanderthals were lactose intolerant because we hadn't domestic domesticated cows yet, so of course they were lactose intolerant. Mm. But just the idea of, I wonder if the Ibanese have different dietary restrictions as well. Oh yeah, not, they not, might. not not with lactose necessarily, but they might. Certainly, blubber better. I don't know. Yeah, certainly a lot of cultures are lactose intolerant more so than, you know, us 
white folk, us Westerners. Like, yeah. Uh, so you know, yeah. So I, I wonder if they would, if they, they would be able to yeah. have milk, dairy products, or makes not. sense. Like your, the diet DNA does uh, include some of that stuff. Yeah. I think I think the Yemenis strike me as a people who would definitely be drinking that fermented yak milk. Yeah, they, they do. They do. I, I, you know, that's funny. I, I what is their alcohol like, choice? Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> what are they? But doing? Uh, some, the libation. Something I want to add with like Yemenis bravosi relations. Mm. Now we've talked about Yemenis being used as slaves, like slave ending up in the fight oh, marine, but we've yeah. never talk, heard of the Yemenis being slavers themselves. True. True. Now, if Ib is a is a culture that that was never a slaver, a never a slaver nation, never or maybe even anti-slavery, then that would it would make sense that they would have a good relation with Bravos to start. That relation very should be very metal. One, there is maybe slight evidence of slavery there, not there, but one Ibanese sailor, a harpooner, tries to buy Podrick from Brienne. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that slavery, but <laughs> like that that indicates the entire nation as slavery. Well, I don't think it does, but it's I, still it's something. It's yeah. it's worth a mention. Yeah, what's I guess he want to buy? What's he trying to buy him? <laughs> yeah, what did he want Pod for? <laughs> That's what I was, was going to say. Is like, was he buying him for keeps or buying him for a night? Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, good point. Good point. The Ebony's frequent whorehouses. I, I don't think that was clear. You're right. <laughs> if Satin's an indication, we know you know, and people have their. References. <laughs> Brienne wasn't about to ask for specifically. What exactly do you want him for? <laughs> She's like, no. <laughs> Just we need no further explanation. That's a big nope. Yeah. Mm. So, like when we talk about how they probably have sailing and network trading network with places like Nefer and Mossavi and maybe other places. Again, they not only have different maps and routes, but they probably have different methods of communication and different relationships. Certain peoples might prefer to deal with the Ibanese, like the Bravosi, like we just said, because they may have similar values about certain important cultural touchstones like slavery. Or they might keep secrets well. <laughs> you could trust the Ibanese. Or maybe they're just their stubbornness. We talk about how that might work in people's favor. They like they're less likely to renege on a deal or less likely to sell you crappy goods. Not unlike, not like it's impossible. I can't imagine like every single Ibanese sailor is on the up and up. Surely not. I mean, there are some of them are in the Brave Companions. So <laughs> clearly, like any culture, there's some scumbags and some good people. But it might be like the average Ibanese is a little bit more upfront with dealing just because of cultural reasons. Who knows? It's possible like that. As well, they might have like their own legends about ice dragons. And other legends of places like Cannibal Bay. Cannibal Bay is that place that supposedly you sail in and you can't get out. It's like a... And in these, this refers... In fact, this is connected to the legends of Ice Dragons. So you're stuck until you starve to death. It's kind of like something out of ancient real-world exploring of like the Arctic Circle, like the terror when you get your ship just like it's stuck in ice or what have you. All right, our last little section is characters and outlook. Some of these characters have been mentioned before. We've wondered at the places on the map the Ibanese know of that they keep secret, and we wonder the same of the Summer Islands, right? The Summer Islanders have also have places that they probably haven't told about. Look at them together. What do the Summer Islanders and the Ibanese, what's their connection to each other? The two premier sailing peoples of the world, but really far apart in terms of geography. One's a warm weather people, one's a cold weather people. They look a lot different pale-skinned, hairy versus dark-skinned, not particularly hairy. Lots of like little physiological differences like that. 
But they would all, but they would both have a lot to say about sailing. I wonder if there's a lot of trading. They they might swap nautical information. They might have secrets they would trade with each other because only they there would be the only equivalent trading partner. Only the Summer Islanders would have maps of obscure value as you know, to the extent that the Ibanese do. Now, the only place we actually see Summer Islanders and Ibanese together is the, it's the Bloody Mummers, though. The Bloody Mummers are this really unusual melting pot of different races and cultures of all the worst people. Nymeria kills an Ibanese man that's hunting Arya. The Brother Without Banners kill a couple, at least. And as Tim mentioned before, Tog Joth, is is possibly with Zalo the Fat, who cut Jamie's hand off, and Urzwick, who is the highest ranking living member of the Brave Companions, who's out there. So they're they were last seen trying to make it to Old Town, presumably to get to a port and flee Westeros. And we'll see if that happens. I imagine George is not going to forget about them. As I said before, lots of different sailors here and there. Cat, Theon, Danny, Quentin, Martell, they all see Ibanese here and there. Arya gets yelled at by an Ibanese sailor and prop, propo, propositioned by another and sells clams and stuff to others. She meets Asadora of Ibn, who is a sex worker at the, at the Happy Port. So that's, I think she's the only female Ibanese that we meet on screen. Others are mentioned like Brown Ben Plum's grandmother. But It's interesting to hear the names today. We got Tog Joth and we got Asadora. They're just yeah, different yeah. sounding names. They are a little different sounding, aren't they? Asadorus doesn't sound like Tog Joth at all. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just doesn't sound like it at all. But and they don't necessarily have to always have an Ibanese name. Yeah. And there could just be a huge difference in female Ibanese names and male names too. I wish we had a greater sample size to, to really be able to tell, but yes. we just don't. It's like the Saranori. We have three names, all of which sound like Azora High. So we can tell a lot just from that, but it's not exactly a large Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it could be just the small sample size. One name is an outlier, you know. Maybe, yeah. But but also that outlier might be connected to something that creates a lot of outliers. Like if it's a sailing culture, they might be exposed to a lot of different names and places, yeah. or you know, name their kids after people from other areas mm. that they have encountered or sailed with. Yeah, and so they might have gone somewhere. Yeah, you're totally right. I, I, I you're right. I, I think that it probably would have more outliers. <laughs> Tyrion has two guards who are Ebony's that for Shay. He, he needed guards that wouldn't be recognizable as his guards. Like his clansmen are clearly his men, so he didn't want to have that. He couldn't have like Braun be there. So he needed people that could do that. Braun and, and Varus found them for him, which is like, okay, well, Varus found you these guys? <laughs> well, who are, they really, who are they really working for? And the two guards are really into each other. They're, they're gay lovers, apparently. And, and it's probably, maybe this is going too far in speculation, but maybe they left it because their relationship wasn't accepted there. I don't know. It's not something that's well-defined in Westeros in general, which probably means it's not a big deal. But who knows? My last small point before we get to our little outro bit here is that one of the ships, John, orders Cotter Pike to commandeer is an Ibanese whaler. Although with dead things in the water, that might not save him. Curious to know, of all the ships in that group, that one might be the one that's got the best chance to make it out alive. And if not, well, then maybe we'll have some Ibanese whites in the mix, which is, well, even whites deserve a bit of diversity. Hmm. (laughs) So, Tim, I have a question for you. When you're dealing with theories that are maybe off the beaten path, you call them Tim foil? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I saved that for last. <laughs> now he does. <laughs> what I do do with tinfoil is I gr- I do grade them. And one of my running jokes is that when you got a tinfoil theory, there's there's that red old rap quality, and then there's that dollar store stuff. <laughs> Even tinfoil. And I'm like, oh, you got to bring the. I want that Reynolds rap quality tinfoil. <laughs> I like. And it. That's what I try with some of my theories. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, where do people one, find you? Yeah, like, give us your final statements and, and tell people where to find you, where you're going to be at, what you're working on. Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at The Gray Waste. You can find me on YouTube, uh, Gray Waste Tim. That's my channel. My last stream that I did last Saturday was a stream quest of Unknown Kadam. A <laughs> stream quest, nice. <laughs> we went, awesome. over, uh, went over the, the Lovecraft story and kind of pulled some elements from that story related it back to Song of Ice and Fire. Cool. So the next one I have planned for my own channel, I want to do a reading of Shadow over Innsmouth nice. and uh, talk, do a lot more of like the these fish people areas that get brought up, Thousand Isles and the three. I have a lot to say about sisters cool. i have some opinions about them. heck yeah a lot of people cite a shadow over insmith as their favorite lovecraft story i i it's definitely in my top five but i always have trouble picking a favorite it might be colorado space but i'm not sure anyway do you have a favorite my favorite lovecraft story probably the classic call of the cthulhu the thing so you know, good that's so what, good yeah that's what he's most famous for that's what started all and that's the thing that's really still that's that's tends to be like when you think lovecraft like that's the immediate immediate go-to yeah i hear you what's there. the one with the i think it was a submarine captain oh that's remember the, that story? the temple there's a big undersea temple that they stumble on yeah that they encounter and that's a big they don't go into it or anything no. oh, he's not the one i'm thinking he tries to at the end <laughs> he try he he decides to die that way because he knows he's going to die he's like so he, he gets out of the sub and tries to like go in so yeah, it's pretty creepy. But he's this yeah, the hardcore like German sub commander that's like super disciplined and yeah, rigid and yeah, it's really good. Like, how does a person like that respond to horror? That's 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 kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one thing I want to say, like, when you were relating back to the idea of Ibanese relations with Summer Islanders, mm-hmm. I could actually picture like, like I, I just want to set a scene for you. Okay, so like we're at some port, a port bar. I guess Bravos would be a good setting for this. A Bravosi bar with some summer islanders drinking with some Ibanese, <laughs> just talking and laughing with each other. Shopping like sailing uh, stories. Stupid, stupid Westerosi. I know what's down south, but I'm never going to tell them. <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I know what's up north, and I'm never going to tell them. <laughs> and then they're just trying to be like, tell me what you know. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get each other drunk, trying to get a little, just a little bit of clue. Just What's a going little on? bit of information. <laughs> So that's awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming, Tim. We've got two very short outro quotes here that both refer to Ib that I think are too fun to not include. Both of these quotes are maybe in the top 10% of A Song of Ice and Fire quotes because we've, we've referred to them before. Other people have referred to them, but they're semi-famous and they both, again, refer to Ib. So the first one is from Varus. Spare a thought for these poor dudes. In A Storm of Swords, Varus brings us this message to Tywin and the rest of the council. A kraken has been seen off the fingers. He giggled. Not a Greyjoy, mind you. A true kraken. It attacked an Ibanese whaler and pulled it under. Now, this next quote is a Greyjoy, mind you. The Iron Captain, a feast for crows. Y'all know this one. You serve one goddamn fair. 
that I have served 10,000. From Ib to Ashai, when men see my sails, they pray. Yeah. Also spare a thought for the unfortunate Ibanese who have fallen into Euron's clutches because that wouldn't be pretty. Mm-mm-mm-mm. No, it would not. Okay. The answer to our trivia question, the largest known creature, according to the World of Ice and Fire, is, it's been cited in this episode a few times, the Leviathan. Yes, indeed, the Leviathan. Its name inspires and speaks to great size. And the Ibanese specifically go hunt them in their breeding grounds. So again, these people are brave. They go after the largest things in the world. And I guess haul them home. You don't bring that up on your ship. I guess you haul it home. You tow it back to the port. Probably the same with the whales. The Leviathan is like a whale, or what? It is. I think it's classed as a whale in in, in Westeros. Okay, yeah. Or in the Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. yeah. Clarify but. that for everyone, because the Leviathan can be a lot. A lot of creatures could be classed in the real world as like a Leviathan yeah. version of something. It can yeah. be a description rather than a specific like Dang, species right. or what have you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Sean, we'll also want to make sure you get a cat for us today. Yeah. And I shall get a cat. I think I'm going to have Aziz show off Xerxes. Oh, cool. I can show off Xerxes. Excellent. Oh, should I go grab Tim? You should. I was going to say, Tim, you have a cat too, right? Yeah. I'm surprised he hasn't popped up during this. Usually, cat he break, cat fest. Cat, cat fest. Xerxes Emperor Xerxes is right here now. with his there blue he eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Our beloved boy. He's a little cut off. His head, you can't see his pretty blue eyes. I mentioned a few of our other episodes for y'all to explore for further deep dives. When Giants Roamed to discuss more about the Ibanese and their connection to Giants and the Hairy Men and the Skagosi and all that. Our episode, our recent World of Ice and Fire episodes on Lorath and the Kingdom of Sarnor, of course, are quite relevant as well. Look at Tim's kitty with yeah. his pink collar there. Oh, we couldn't quite get all three on screen at the same time. We got two on screen at the same time, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. Xerxes has moved on to do yeah. more cat things elsewhere. <laughs> so no episode next week, my fellow Westorians. We are at San Diego Comic-Con. Hopefully we will bring you some excellent news, some reports, some fun stuff. So look out for maybe a bonus stream on that. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. And definitely, though, the week after is Dragonstone. It won via the Sarnor rule, which, of course, for us means that it got second in our polling three different times, which gets it a uh, grandfathered in, so to speak, grandmothered in. Hey, there's a kitty from Sean. There's the third cat. That's right. That's a nice, docile, sweet-looking girl there. There she is. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! We got we do have two cats on screen. Look at this! Yeah, <laughs> kitties. <laughs> Xerxes is watching them. He's right here looking at your cats. Yeah, <laughs> He's oh, watching yeah. the screen. He's particularly looking at your screen. cat right now, Sean. Uh, <laughs> He's staring right at her. <laughs> Ooh, look at that! Oh, she's so pretty. Oh, you can. David's still here. He's just out of frame. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see the ear. I can barely on your black. The shirt. black cat on your black shirt. Yeah, I can barely see. <laughs> So you you can support you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. You can sign up through Spotify. If you've already got a Spotify subscription, you can just add on an extra five bucks a month and get all our bonus content. You can go to our website, historyofwesteros.com, make a one-time donation, and we'll just email you the links to both the bonus videos and podcast episodes. And we appreciate any form of support, even if it's just word of mouth. Word of mouth is great. That helps us a lot. So however you want to support the show. We will appreciate it. Also, what's your cat's name, Tim? I didn't quite catch it. 
Damon. 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 Nice. Oh. Excellent. Oh, yes. Damon the kitty. Nice. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, Tim. Remember, folks, as we've been saying the last few weeks, if you're going to be in Dragon Con or around Dragon Con around Atlanta for Labor Day weekend, make sure to hit us up. We're doing a screening of House of the Dragon Episode 3 in a rented theater. Be about a few hundred people there, so it should be a nice party. Yeah, with the costume contest. So if you're coming, start thinking about some cosplay. Yeah, and you can drink some of Sean's crazy beverages there. Too. Yeah, you can. I realize, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and make sure you go to our Threadless store, historywesteros.threadless.com, to check out the new logo designs and get yourself a shirt or bag or some stickers or something. Yeah. And then go head over to Tim's channel, check out his work. And check out Nina at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L. Thanks to all of our patrons who have been supporting us for both the long term and the short term, whichever category you fall into. We appreciate that. We wouldn't be able to do it without you. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin, and Michael for the maps, the intro, the song, and all that good stuff that makes our show look cooler and feel even nicer. Thanks to our mods on Facebook and Discord for helping keep things smooth and clean and all that. We appreciate the effort. And if you're feeling up for a stream on another topic, head over to Here Be Dragons. They're discussing the classic film, The Fifth Element. Which has a great first line. The first line in The Fifth Element is... For another trivia, can anyone tell me? I can say. Sean knows it. What is it? Aziz. Light. Yes. Yeah. My name <laughs> is the first word in that movie. <laughs> That's right. And I saw that movie in the theater. You might even say it several times. Aziz. Light. Aziz. Yeah. Light. <laughs> I know. We were, I saw the movie in the theater. My friends and I were like, what? What? Because <laughs> that no one ever said my name. <laughs> Until Aziz Ansari came along. you know, Or Tariq Aziz, the Saddam Hussein's like, left-hand roommate. Like, I'd rather forget about that one. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you all next time. Thanks again. Oh, Sean, you had another thing to say? I just wanted to make another plug for Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. show on TV. Yes. <laughs> and it's only got a few episodes left. And I've got a video on YouTube about how they're using color, which is amazing. I watched it. It was really good. And yeah, I, check it out, folks. I appreciate any feedback that anyone wants to give me about the show. If you haven't started watching it, do start watching it. I'd love to know. Anyway. Cool. I was watching it earlier today while I was working on the notes. Oh, awesome. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Better Call Saul. For one last plug for me, I just want to shout out to Gray Area and the ladies of Dire Wolf City. Those are co- I bought for them. That's coming back. Oh, and, uh, cool. Yeah, they are coming back. Yeah, that's great. And I'm scheduled for my second appearance on Obsidian Knights podcast with Gray Area. Heck yeah. I got John Six in the Clash of Kings, which is the Bale the Bard Nice. Heck yeah. Oh, that's cool. awesome. Yeah, we'll be having two of the ladies from Dire Wolf City on one of our Saturday streams for House of the Dragons yeah. uh, coverage. And some of our guests will be having a a whole bunch of different guests each week on Saturdays. I think it's easy to Look at how well this community works together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay, folks, until next time, on behalf of everyone here at History of Westeros, you know what to do. Bellar Reese. <laughs>